just listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? out there. Morris Bistinski here. Uh, if you've downloaded this, which well, of course you have because you're listening to me, um, this is episode number 22 of my podcast, Love That Album. And with me on the other end of a Skype line is my good friend and co-podcaster and co-drummer and co-day job compatriot, Michael Persh. Good evening, Michael. Morris, how you going, mate? Nice, nice to say hello again. Indeed, indeed. I'm loving the fact that we've uh, made this a regular, a regular thing. It's uh, the beauty of podcasting and the beauty of uh, modern technology to agree. We're always sort of saying, "Oh, it's not like the old days," but you know, some things about the new days are pretty good. I find. Well, if it was the old days, we wouldn't be able to do this, would we? <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's why I think this is a mighty fine thing that we're doing here with uh, with uh, Skype and podcasting and all the like. Anyway, um, I've decided I'm going to do something a little bit different with um, I Love That Album this episode around, and it's sort of been inspired by uh, a recent episode that Michael had for his show Sitting in a Bar in Adelaide, where we both um, discussed our top 10 drummers, and it's also inspired by um, my good friends Ricardo and VK and Jenny and Juan over at the List Music Podcast, where they take a topic and they talk about, um, they list their top five of whatever that week's topic is, and I, I, I know I'm sort of feeling all listy here. Um, so basically, I, I ran this idea past Michael where we would list our favourite uh, instrumental albums of all time, and um, you know, Michael came to the party, came to the table. Um, and I, I sort of find that because a lot of the time, um, I, I, when talking about an album, I, I tend to I tend to go a bit into the lyrics and the themes behind uh, the songs uh, lyrically or, or across the album. Um, I, I personally find it's a little bit harder, maybe, to sort of talk at great length. Uh, about an album that may be all instrumental. They're very, very different beasts. Not, they're not just music albums that don't have singing on them. Um, you have to, I, I guess, approach the composition in a completely different way to, um, you know, I, I know, I don't know how you feel about it, Michael, but I know I've heard songs where uh, there might be um, like an instrumental version of something that was previously sung. Uh, and they let the guitar or piano line carry the melody previously done by a singer, and it didn't always seem to work to me, but where a really good tune that had been written as an instrumental right from the word go had been uh, structured properly, it can be a marvellous thing. Well, those sort of things remind me too much of being in the dentist chair when you <laughs> play that sort of thing. Oh no, just wait for the pain to begin. Mm. So so do you have any uh, music in your list? <laughs> um 
Well, it dep- uh, depends on your opinion. There may be something. <laughs> people, there, yeah, my, I was actually pleasantly surprised myself what what sort of you know diverse things I came up with, and and it wasn't hard. It was actually hard to cut down the list, and um, I, I initially thought it might I might have the opposite problem that you know what what am I gonna what am I actually gonna find? So mm. it was uh, it was the opposite. No, okay, all right, well. Normally what we'd do on the show at this point would be, uh, I'd be asking Michael what albums he's been listening to of late, but given that we're both going through our top 10 albums and probably have some honourable mentions at the end, I think we'll just rip straight into it, maybe take a break at the halfway mark. Uh, but uh, well, yeah, we'll, each, we'll, we'll start through, and I, I can't speak for Michael, but I'm not going in any particular order. How about you, Michael? You just No, gonna... no, it's oh, right. absolutely too hard to do. All right, so yeah, okay, so... This is not to be taken as our 10th best or our best. And to be absolutely honest with you, I think a lot of the albums in my honourable mentions could really have easily made it into um, uh, the top 10 probably on another day. But this is just you know, where I want to go to today. And I, I imagine from the sounds of it, you feel the same way about your list, Michael. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. All right. Well, would you like to um, get started with, with uh, your first pick? All righty. My, my first one is... And, and I guess this is indicative, the first one that I've chosen. A, a lot of musicians that I'd like and that I've become familiar with from bands or from other contexts go off in another part of their career and make instrumental albums. And, hmm. and I'm not sure I'm not sure why, but that's it seems to be a common thread that I, that I was you know when I actually put this together that popped up and, and the first one is uh, is no exception and it's a guy by the name of Derek Sherinian. Sherinian is probably most well-known. He's, he's a, a keyboard player from the United States, most well-known from uh, his years with Dream Theater, who uh, are now still one of the most, I think, loved progressive bands in the world. And um, thank you very much to my son, who put me onto Dream Theater probably quite a few years ago anyway. And, mm. uh, and, and yeah, although they're, they're different to the to the the prog that, that we grew up with in the 70s they really do still carry that carry that banner and carry it very well there's a lot of heavy moments in there that are that are uh, a bit more um, a bit more full on than what, to, than what I grew up with but but even so they're uh, a great band indeed but if, if people are familiar with the history of Dream Theater um, Derek Sherinian hasn't been in the band for, for quite a few years but he's been making uh, instrumental albums and the most fantastic stuff, and and he's um, 
He's, he's had a collaboration, I think, since day one with Simon Phillips, who, uh, as we spoke about, as you mentioned before, Morris, we, uh, when we did uh, our top ten drummers on my show, Simon Phillips was uh, was on both of our lists. And uh, mm. not, not only is he a fine drummer, but he's a, a very reputable and, and much sought-after record producer and uh, an engineer and just has a great ear. And, and Derek and Simon have been working together for... For many years, and the, the album that I chose is, is the most recent one called uh, called Oceana, and it's um, it really is. It, sh- it shows it shows both of those guys what great players they are, but but also there's a, you know, I guess a, a a theme of of guys that these guys work with that are you know some of the best in that field these days. Zach Wild appears on lots of uh, of Shawinian albums. And I, I had the, the pleasure of, of speaking to to both Derek and Zach on different occasions on the show and they both refer to each other as the professor and and they <laughs> and they but they seem to bring out very technical things in each other that especially Zach Wild well, people will be familiar with him as long-term guitar player with Ozzy Osbourne and whether, whether yes. that is your cup of tea or not Zach Wild when he plays with uh, Derek Sherinian is a very different musician and he just is wild he is just and you know, that's how that for a pun. He is, but, <laughs> but he, he pulls things out, pulls things out of the air that are just, yeah, magnificent stuff. As good as any virtuoso guitar player in that, you know, an electric guitar player that you will ever hear. But so, um, yeah, Oceana is is an album. It, um, Derek's early work was was quite heavy and quite dark, and and this one is is a bit more lighter, and I think is most accessible album. But some. Um, yeah, I, I just, I'll just quickly run through some of the guys that play on it, and, and some of these guys pop up in in, in some of my uh, some of my list as well. But um, guys, you folks may be familiar with guest on this album, Tony McAlpine is a is a great guitar player who who plays with the likes of Steve Vai and all those sort of guys. Yes, he was in that sort of will. Um, Steve Lukather seems to play with everybody, and, and wow. you and I love him from his work with the Tubes and other things. Yes. Uh, Steve Stevens, who is a bit of a surprise, but he really oh. another guy who, who you don't normally associate with. Uh, Billy Idol, Idol, Billy yeah. Idol guitar. Yeah, 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 but you don't. You know, I don't personally think of him as a a, a sort of virtuoso prog guitar player. But when you put him in this context, and you actually and his solo albums are very similar, he's he's a damn fine guitar player and does not really get the accolades he's worth. And of course, Simon Phillips plays drums, and uh, and Joe Bonamassa plays some uh, some guitar on this album, and because uh, he is uh, he is a, uh, a fine guitar player. Indeed. So uh, yeah, if, yeah, people may not be familiar with Derek Schwinnin, but I uh, yeah I can uh, if if you like some of the artists that I've just mentioned, you will uh, you will no doubt uh, enjoy his stuff. He's in a may, maybe a, a Rick Wakeman on uh, you know. On a heavy metal trip, you could say. <laughs> well, so you, you were saying that um, this Ocean Air album, um, it, it, it's a bit of a, uh, a lighter mood to his earlier, more heavy stuff. So, you know, so does that Rick Wakeman comparison still hold up? Well, I think the Rick Wakeman comparison is more is more in this album in Oceana than any of his previous stuff. His previous stuff, I think, was a lot more experimental and a lot more like the the old dream theater if people are familiar with that so yeah i think this is a lot more accessible but okay it's, it's it's the kind of stuff the the more you listen to it the the more you get rewarded because the uh, the playing of everyone on it is just amazing okay well fantastic all right um 
I'll, I'll, okay, so my first choice um, is an album by a group that um, I guess a lot of people in um, Australia and England would have had, well, at least our age, would have a lot of affection for. Um, it, it, it was like a, a super group of sorts. And I'm talking about the, uh, uh, the group Sky. In 1979, the first Sky album came out of the blue, and that pun was certainly intended, uh, when these five musicians of various backgrounds got together, you know, more for fun and experiment. Um, So there was Herbie Flowers, uh, who's the bass player and occasional tuba player, and he'd been a session player for years. Um, Probably the two works that I know of the most... Uh, was his work on uh, David Bowie's Space Oddity and he'd only um, I think maybe just a couple of years prior had played bass on Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds project Um, John Williams the renowned classical guitarist uh, out of Melbourne uh, who learned from uh, the great Segovia from the age of 11 I think Uh, Tristan Fry um, a a drummer who'd actually to the best of my knowledge, never played kit before joining Sky. He was a percussionist for a variety of uh, pop and classical sessions. Uh, Francis Monkman, who was a classical keyboard player, but had also you know, dabbled in uh, work for um, uh, film soundtracks. He played, I think, I don't know if it's his most famous work, but I know of his work on uh, a great British gangster film called The Long Good Friday, which has... Uh, Helen Mirren and Bob Hoskins in it, and uh, a, a guy originally out of uh, your hometown of Adelaide, uh, Kevin Peake, uh, rock guitarist who played uh, with um, uh, Alan Tarney and first name Spencer, Tarney and Spencer, uh, a rock trio out of Adelaide. Um, and Tarney Spencer band had quite a few, quite a few hits in the States in, I guess, the late 70s. I'd be interested to know whether... Um, uh, where the peak was part of that, uh, part of that lineup, um, uh, but um, yeah, he, he played with them for a while, and he ended up being a session player, playing for the likes of Leo Sayer and Cliff Richard. Um, unfortunately, I think uh, I'd, I'd heard that in recent years, um, Kevin was living in Perth um, with financial troubles, all sorts of you know financial troubles from uh, businesses 
gone awry. A uh, bit of a shame because he was uh, heralded as you know something of a great guitarist and you know was loved and adored by Sky fans back in the day. Um, I, I guess it was all too easy back in the day to lumber them in you know with the uh, the art rock tag, but they were you know miles away from that. Um, I, there was there was nothing serious about. I mean, they played their music beautifully, but they really loved to have fun above everything. They were they were huge dags, and if you're living outside of Australia, dag here is I, 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 I don't know how, what's what's a good word um, that describes what a dag is, Michael. Oh, I guess it's a, um, a ring, your English listeners may may understand. Yeah. Um, not quite a nerd, but but just you know someone. Yeah, a lovable nerd. A lovable, a lovable nerd. Yeah. Um, so, so how would you? Do, I would describe as as, as the uh, the way the monkeys came across on the television. Show. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that would work. Um, look, they they look, they did one thing that most rock groups just you know did not do on stage. They smiled. They wore noddy hats. They lined tubers with multicoloured lights and. And shining disco balls during tunes such as the bathroom song. Uh, they wanted the audience to go away happy from their concerts. And uh, look, I saw them, I don't know, I mean, over the years that they kept coming back to play in Australia, plus multiple concerts on each tour. I must have seen them at least eight times or so. Um, but, you know, despite all that, they weren't a novelty band. I mean, musicians at their pedigree couldn't be. But they combined their own really great originals and rock arrangements of uh, classical pieces uh, you know, from the likes of Bach, Eric Satie and Hector Berlioz and they were out of step with everything else that was going on at the time. I mean, you know, the, what was the world listening to? I think, you know, it was during the day of, you know, Duran Duran and Spandau Ballet and, uh, and I think you know, the Sex Pistols had just gone and imploded and, and here was Sky doing what they were doing. Uh, and yet in Australia and in Europe anyway, they were really, really big back in the day. Um, the, the album that I've gone with for, for this show is their first, but really it could, it, it could quite be a tie for me between number one, uh, Sky 1, Sky 2 and Sky 5 Live, which was um, recorded in Australia. Uh, and to be honest, I, I think some of their albums vary in quality from a certain point onwards, but the first Sky album is a masterpiece. Each member of the group brought something to the table and they just really made astonishing music. Um, they they had, you know, brought a really beautiful touch to uh, a, a lovely, normally piano piece uh, by Eric Sarty called Genopity Number no. 1 and they had a full-blown 20-minute piece called Where Opposites Meet on side two of the album and you know, it'd be quite easily to, you know, to just sort of say after the first five minutes I've had enough but I couldn't play that 20-minute piece enough, and I memorized the whole thing in my head. It was just gorgeous. Um, and you know, they've, they've had tragedy over the years. As, you know, their second keyboard player, Steve Gray, uh, died. I think maybe about four or five years ago. He was he was pretty ill, I believe. Uh, Kevin Peek has had financial troubles, and they've even been in prison uh, because of financial management problems. But none of that takes away from the fact that. Back in the day, they were a fun band. They were great live. Um, and you mentioned Rick Wakeman before. I think after John Williams left, they just decided to have the core group of four-plus guests. And I remember seeing them do a tour of Australia where Rick Wakeman was one of the guest members of 
the band. So I've never seen him in his own right, never seen him with Yes, but I've seen him with Sky, and he just looked like he was having an absolute ball. Um, so speaking of ball, the piece we've been hearing in the background here is from Sky One's called Cannonball. Um, I, I don't know how much of their stuff is on YouTube, but if um, if you don't know who I'm talking about, uh, please look them up. Uh, Sky, the, I think the most famous piece was off Sky 2 was their arrangement of uh, Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor. Um, it, 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 that's what really brought um, the music listening public. And it was a top 40 hit, not a novelty. It sounded great. But um, I, I know that they do have their detractors, but, well, that's their issue, not mine. Anyway. You picked my favourite Sky Tune. Mm. I love Cannonball. It is great, isn't it? Yeah. All right, so what's your next album? Um, well, my next one, my next one mate, nearly didn't make it in, but, but as, we, as we went along um, uh, emailing each other about this uh, and setting it up, you you opened uh, you opened the door to let me uh, or or one of your suggestions had that I found out had a little bit of vocally and and uh, and lyrics on it so I thought right well I'll sneak one in so so my next one is uh, and and I had a real hard hard time picking an album but uh, it's it's one by Kraftwerk called Trans Europe Express. <laughs> Difficulty picking a Kraftwerk album, and because they they all they all have something special about them. Although there is that that common Kraftworkness about them, but but I I really love the way that they um they really changed music back in in the, the mid seventies. As you said, with Sky, there was there was so much happening in in England in in the punk scene, and and these guys in Germany were just doing something absolutely off the wall something totally different and um most as as i guess in especially in australia and or you know in western music indeed we don't get that much out of europe anywhere that really that really is um you know that really crosses the boundaries you know that you can you can maybe name one or two bands from from one you know one each country in europe if you're lucky that have really made an impact um, and and Kraftwerk, you know, especially, I guess, you know, one of the, the few bands from Germany that have really made a worldwide impact and, and kept a Germanness about them. And it's it's really hard to put my put my finger on that. Do you know, do you know what I'm saying? It's got a, yes, it's, I do absolutely. There is a, a very, I guess, harking back to to sort of I guess the groundwork that that Tangerine Dream did before Kraftwerk, um, which I. Uh, 
we'll talk about later. But but Kraftwerk really took that to another level and and took took I guess electronics to another level because um, they really they really in, in embraced the rhythm the rhythm machine back in those days and 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 really they were the the pioneers of sequencing. And well, let me let me ask you this. Um, I mean. <laughs> They were obviously responsible um, in instigating the whole electronic movement, uh, or at least they were you know, early uh, pioneers of the art form. Uh, do you think that uh, the groups that have uh, gone and followed their lead have done as much potentially with it as they could have, that they actually still had the creativity rather than just purely relying on the ability to do stuff with electronics? Do you think that they're artistically uh, with it, or, or you still think that um, uh, they, they left a good legacy? How, how do you see that? It's, it's yeah, interesting question, mate. I, I, the, the thing that I find about where, you know, a lot of techno and house bands, you know, cite Kraftwerk as a major influence, but they've, they've taken it in a direction that I don't think the guys from Kraftwerk even dreamed of in a billion years that you know they took it in such a different direction and um yeah i, I can i can hear that in so many different things and and i guess that is that is cool that it's you know i don't particularly like the the electro house techno stuff but but i do like the the clarity and the 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 because i guess you know as much as us being drummers don't like to hear drum machines and things but but you know the clarity <laughs> of of a of, of digital um, recording on digital instruments does have something about it. You, you know, the the bass just and not so. I guess in you know nowadays where um, the technology you can actually you know digitally enhance uh, a drum kit, for instance, and give the bass drum something that'll just you know stop your heart from beating. But back mm. in those days, Kraftwerk actually, you know, I think pioneered some of those sounds, which I really like. But um, but yeah, they. Yeah, and I still love going back and, and listening to Trans Europe Express in particular. But as I said, there's a there's a lot of them that um, that uh, yeah still stand the test of time, which I don't think people thought of at the time. And yeah, I, I guess as you alluded to before, you know, there are all too few European bands which uh, made much of a name in in this part of the world. Uh, but uh, yeah, certainly Kraftwerk were one of the few who. Um, I, mean, I mean, maybe not, maybe not household names here. But even if you weren't uh, a fan of electronic music, I think a lot more people knew the name Kraftwerk than uh, most other European bands, which they potentially could have been you know, had more mainstream success for some reason. Mm, indeed, and and I, I regret not going to see them. I, I I recall they did a big day out around Australia not that long ago. Mm, um, mm. Well, it may have been ten years ago, but um, yeah, and I, it, it sort of passed me by, and I, I remember seeing a review after it happened. I thought oh, I would have loved to have seen them, just just to have seen what they were like, because I've I've got some live recordings of them, and they, and they sound really great live. So I, you know, it would be quite a uh, quite an experience to see them play. Hmm. All right, okay. Uh, we'll go now to my next album. And uh, it's from the aforementioned Rick Wakeman. I'm talking about Rick Wakeman's criminal record. Mm-hmm. 
Now, this was an album that came out, I'm pretty sure, yeah, 1977. Um, and I already had been a fan of Rick Wakeman to an extent for a while. Uh, my, my older sister had made me sit down and watch a special. You know, Rick Wakeman had come out a couple of years before, I think, to Australia and brought his... Um, Journey to the Centre of the Earth show performed with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra as well as a band uh, at Melbourne's My Music Bowl and as I think I sent you in an email only a few days ago that 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 footage has actually been commercially released on DVD in in the last few years which is very exciting news I think I'd uh, better rush out and purchase that one just to see if it lives up to my wonderful childhood memories Um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking for it already. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, look, you know, Rick Rakeman already had uh, a, a name as uh, a member of Yes from the very early days. And he was someone who was sort of in and out of Yes. He was there for a while and then left and then came back a little bit like Jules Holland and the Squeeze, really. Um, but um, he, I think, to my way of thinking, was probably not a bad thing that he ended up sort of going and doing a separate thing because he probably had all this, all these great creative ideas, all these thematic ideas for albums. And, you know, probably couldn't have done that within the Yes framework short of them sort of giving in completely to his vision, which, you know, probably wouldn't have been fair. So he thought, oh, well, I'll just go off and do my own thing. And I guess for a lot of people that started off with his, uh, listening to his debut album, I think it was his debut album, uh, The Six Wives of Henry VIII. And man, I tell you, just to diverse, even though we're, I'm supposed to be talking about the criminal record, I have to say that his tune, Anne of Cleves, from Six Wives of Henry VIII, is really above all the reason I'm a huge nut for Alan White. The drumming on that is absolutely sensational. And I, I'd like to say I'd give my left arm to be able to play that well or play that tune, but then that would leave me with one arm and probably wouldn't be able to do it. So I just have to work on practicing. Um, but yeah, I, lo- I loved The Six Wives of Henry VIII, you know, his, his impression with, with every tune on his perception of the personality of each one of the wives. And, you know, he went on to do you know, other albums, you know, his, his musical interpretation of Jules Verne, Journey to the Center of the Earth, as we spoke about, uh, the King Arthur legend. Uh, he wrote the soundtrack for a documentary about the 1976 Winter Olympic Games in Innsbruck um, did a really fantastic adaptation of uh, George Orwell's 1984 novel uh, and he, he must have made, I don't know, 30 or 40 albums or something like that over the years, even including, I think, meditation music, which I got into autograph at the Sky concert. Why didn't they take a really good album? I don't know, but anyway. Um, so, the criminal record, he basically devotes a whole album with music to crimes or the justice system and um, side one and side two of the album are very very different side one is a band side and he's using a couple of members from um, from yes he's using chris squire and the aforementioned alan white as his rhythm section and a guy called Frank Ricotti. i'm not sure about what else frank Ricotti has done except for playing on rick's uh, white rock album that we mentioned before um, but um, the the band just sounds formidable and the music is memorable and it's really really exciting um, he has you know music uh, dedicated to you know the statue of justice 
crimes of passion and the chamber of horrors, as in the aforementioned, oh, not the aforementioned, as in the Madame Two Swords uh, chamber of horrors. And it's just really, really exciting music. I know that all too often uh, what we terminate, not terminate, term as art rock can get a bad rap, but really this gives this sort of music um, a good name. It's just really, really exciting stuff. And then side two, he just goes somewhere completely different. Um, he, he, the first, the first track, um, which is the track I'm playing now, is the Birdman of Alcatraz. Um, so a lot of people are familiar with uh, the Burt Lancaster true story film, uh, but this is his musical interpretation. I just love what he does. You know, the beginning of the tune with uh, the the playing of the piano it sounds like the chirping of birds and the music is just so gorgeous and majestic and what a really memorable tune um then there's a uh, a bit of a novelty track but even in rick wakeman's hand novelty track is wonderful it's um, called the breathalyzer and it's sort of a little bit of a cheat here because um we do get a minute's worth of singing from bill oddy of the goodies but you know i think that's allowable health you know it's our podcast we can do what we want can't we michael yeah. uh, uh, and but the centerpiece uh, is the twelve-minute track about uh, Judas Iscariot, and this has got a fully-blown orchestra and Swiss choir, and it's just majestic. It's you know really, really wonderful. Uh, I have no idea whether this album has ever been released on CD. I've still got it on vinyl. Have had it for you know since it came out, and it's always getting a spin on uh, my turntable. If you can find that in a second-hand record store, if indeed, if it has been released on CD, uh, and you're a fan of Rake, wait, Rick, I'll start again, fan of Rick Wakeman, um, but you haven't heard this one, this is one to search out. Um, if you can't get it legitimately, then you know, go through some of the other channels. But, um, yeah, a wonderful, wonderful record, Rick Wakeman's criminal record. And a great photo on the front, actually, of um, him sitting uh, next to his piano wearing the judge's robes and with a gavel holding a gavel on the top of his grand piano so um yeah look fantastic and 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 the thing is even though the music sounds very serious he always struck me as someone with a great sense of humor and i think that front cover sort of shows it there there was i think back in the 80s late 80s he he did a club tour in australia and really um, yes yes and he had no idea and and he um as you say, his music was serious, but between songs, his patter was just hilarious. He was like a stand-up comedian. Yep. He was fantastic, and um, yeah, absolutely brilliant. I, I would go and see him play just to see him. If he did a speaking tour, I would be in the front row. Oh, that would be fantastic. Yep. Oh, let's let's get a petition going. <laughs> He's certainly got some stories to tell, indeed. Okay, so what's your next choice, Michael? Well, seeing we're on a yes theme, I'll I'll, uh, I'll talk about the and again I had a hard time picking this one, but uh, it's the latest recording by uh, the guitar or the I guess the most well-known guitar player from Yes, Steve Howe, and his his latest CD is called Time. <laughs>
as I said, this it was hard to pick a, a, a Steve Howe album. He is he's such a such a, a, a an instrumentalist who can go anywhere, who can take his guitar playing anywhere. I, I guess he's most well known for that for that Chet Atkins sort of style picking, which he does so well. And I, I really think the only other person on the planet that, that sort of does that well is, uh, is our own Tommy Henry. Mm. Um, but um, Steve Howe is one of those guys that lives and breathes guitars, and, and I really like that about him. That he he um, he. Yeah, he just knows the ins and outs of the history of, of everything, and you know he loves his guitars like his children, and, and I find that really interesting. But but his latest album, as I said, is called Time, and it's 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 something of it as of, of of a departure from from what we're sort of used to. Although it's um it's not that much of a stretch. It's it's quite it's quite atmospheric. There's 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 no drums or percussion on the album, which I guess is the is the main difference and and it gives it gives this album so i guess sort of a soundtrack sort of feel which which may may seem a bad thing but it it really isn't it's um and and although you know you may from from saying that you may think you know this is something you put on the background when you're having dinner but it really just drags you in and 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 you really do listen and hear because there's there's not a lot happening and there's lots of space you can just hear uh, what a you know what a great player Steve Howe is, and, and over the course of the album he he goes over as he as he always does such a, a vast you know a range of styles and and that's one of the, the things that I really like about Steve Howe is you can't really say that he plays like anything else which uh, which you know from from anyone you know most virtuoso guitar players have a style but I don't think Steve Howe has a style he has. He is he's his own man, and that's it, which uh, which I find really interesting. And and he's collaborated on this um, on this album with uh, with a guy by the name of Phil K. Joyce, who I who I didn't know anything about until uh, until I did a bit of research on him. But I guess he's most well known from the theme song from Thomas the Tank Engine. Oh, well, that that surely <laughs> would have uh, helped pay the rent for uh, you know a good twenty years or so. Indeed, but, right, but Thomas, he's done right Thomas the Tank Engine, and and you can go off and play with Steve Howe in the back in his garage or something. It's a bit different, isn't it? But um <laughs> but he's he's done a lot of soundtrack and TV's um you know soundtrack work so and and that's where you can sort of hear. But, but you know there's there's really a lot of lush uh, orchestrations on this and it it really is a, and I you know I, I don't want to really use the the phrase but is it a beautiful record it just um there's there's very few records that I that I just Feel that way about that is just beautiful music, especially in a rock context. It, it's got a, it's got a that lush sort of classical feeling that just floats you off, and uh, yeah, it's it's really worth checking out if you. Anyway, so does so Steve Howe's done the path. So does the music sound uh, melodically composed, like structured, or or, or is it fairly um, much in a in an ethereal vein where he he's stand he, he's Sitting there and just improvising as he goes along. Does it? How does it strike you? The music? Well, there's, there's, but and that's, that's the thing about it, Morris. The, the, there's everywhere. He's, he's done. There's, you know, specific um, classical pieces on there that people know. Um, uh, but there's, yeah, there's also stuff that, that sounds like, uh, you know, he's, he's uh, noodling and improvising, which is, which is lovely. So it really does cover a, a really interesting range of stuff. So uh, yeah, I. Uh, I would thoroughly recommend going and digging it up. Okay. 
All right, uh, we'll go on to my next album. And this is from the guitar trio of John McLaughlin, Al Demiola, and Paco de Lucia. Uh, this is their second album together, their 1983 album called Passion, Grace, and Fire. Australia. I'll, actually, I'll, I'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. Um, now, the three of them had really quite a pedigree, uh, you know, obviously, for um, a lot of people be quite familiar with their work. John McLaughlin had been known for years with his fusion work with uh, Miles Davis, who, and even Miles had written a tune, or rather named a track on his Bitches Brew album after him. Uh, John had also done stuff you know, for the Mahavishnu Orchestra. Uh, and Shakti, uh, as well as his own solo work. Um, Aldemiola had worked with uh, Chick Corea's Return to Forever, as well as putting out some really incredible solo albums, which you know, really drew me in about the time when I was starting to take a strong interest into uh, speedrun-type guitar albums, you know, like Splendido Hotel and Land of the Midnight Sun. Um, after a while, probably as a side note, uh, I, I, I think... Uh, Demiola sort of got tired of doing the speed run sort of thing and made um, started making albums that had a more, to me, Pat Metheny sound, uh, like uh, Soaring Through a Dream, which is absolutely a gorgeous album in itself. Um, De Lucia, uh, is, I guess known as a flamenco guitarist, and I don't really know of any of his work outside of the trio, and you know, shame, for, shame on me for not following that up. I realised, you know, back in the day, when I got into them, you know, I guess his albums were a lot harder to come by, but in this day and age, there's no excuse, so I should follow up. But um, the guitar trio was actually originally McLaughlin, De La Chia, and Larry Coriel, um, who, the first I heard of him, I remember, I think he, he was touring Australia, might have even been on Hey Hey at Saturday and played Ravel's Bolero on the guitar, which was you know, nothing like I'd ever heard before. Um, after a while, Coriel was replaced by Al Demiola, and they recorded uh, an album that I have to say changed my life. Friday night in San Francisco, uh, a good friend of mine who's a you know, big guitar nut, um, it said, "Look, I know you, you, know, you like all this pop stuff and all this rock stuff, and you know more power to you. But try listening to something a little bit different." And he loaned me his copy of Friday Night in San Francisco, and I just didn't know you could do stuff like that with a guitar. It was a real eureka moment. Um, and to this day, I still find it absolutely incredible that people can do things like what the guitar trio were doing with the guitar. It, it was it was very technical and blinding, um, but still, you know, when when they settled down, they could. It, it was still also beautifully melodic. Now, the first album, uh, the, the live album, Friday Night in San Francisco. You know, these guys, you know, they were playing away, and there's a lot of audience. Uh, cheering and yelling and whooping and I, I tend to find it gets in the way sometimes with uh, with the music so um, 
maybe for that reason, that's why I've sort of gone for the second album, which was their first the two studio albums that they put together. Uh, and it's, it's still really very, very exciting stuff. Uh, and maybe because they didn't have to feel that they had to impress the audience so much uh, with all these little digressions that they took. Uh, some of the music is a little bit more structured in parts. Uh, I don't know, maybe some wouldn't like that and they might prefer the live album, but I revel in being, being able to hear some of these more structured melodies on uh, on their follow-up. Uh, a couple of the tunes I think had actually, like the John McLaughlin compositions, that was so they each have two compositions on the album. I think the McLaughlin compositions had previously appeared on uh, earlier albums, and the track that we're hearing now, Aspan, had previously appeared on um, John McLaughlin's band album called Music Spoken Here, which is going to be an honourable mention for me. Uh, on that album, he uh, featured um, the keyboarding sisters, Katia and Marielle Lebec, who I think McLaughlin might have been married to one of them. Uh, but um, I digress. Aspan, uh, on that album, it was like a full um, uh, band, jazz band interpretation. But here it's really exciting to hear three acoustic guitars playing in a sort of half jazz, half flamenco vein. Uh, and the whole album is just full of gems like that. And just sort of like as a one final aside to uh, the trio and their experience in Australia, they came out uh, to play here and originally um, when they booked, uh, or shortly before they were due to come, Al Dimiola came down with food poisoning. So they wanted to honour their commitments to the tour. So they recruited a guy who no one, I think in the, at the time, had heard of in Australia called Steve Morse because the Dixie Treggs weren't really a known entity here. And... He so they invited him to take Al Dimiola's place. Well, meanwhile, Dimiola, he found his stomach had recovered, um, and but they still said to Steve Morse, "Well, you know, come along for the ride anyway, uh, be our support act." And I'm wondering to this day whether they regretted that or not, because he came out, played a half-hour set, and I think he blew the three of them off the stage. He walked on looking like this long-haired hippie and. People are sort of think, you know, very politely applauding, but thinking, yeah, do your stuff and get off. And within about 30 seconds, no one wanted him to leave. It's, I think, just about the only time I've ever heard a support act called on for an encore before the main act could come on. And then they call them up later on to join them as a quartet at the very end of the night. It was just a fantastic show played at the Melbourne Concert Hall. Did you uh, get to see them back in the day in Adelaide? No, no, I didn't. But I've seen I've seen Steve Morse and uh, and man, his current gig. How much of a stretch would uh, would 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 be playing Smoke on the Water for him? I, th- I think he just says, right, look, I'll make the money out of Deep Purple, and nothing wrong with playing with Deep Purple because you know he was doing something completely different all those years with the Dixie Dregs and with his own band, the Steve Morse Band. I probably won't, don't want to talk too much more about. It that now because I guess um, I, 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 yeah well not, I'm giving something away but yeah Steve Morse band figures in my top 10 uh, so we'll maybe speak a little bit more about him further on down the line uh, alright uh, your fourth album okay so this, this is one maybe no one's heard of and and I stumbled across this gentleman absolutely by accident and the, the album is called Chase the Dragon and uh, and the uh, the chap responsible is a, a gentleman from the UK called Aid Fenton
Dave Fenton is, um, I guess, most well known as a as a keyboard player, producer, engineer uh, in uh, in his collaborations with Gary Newman. Did, were you well, a Gary Newman fan back in the day? What? I have to say I wasn't, but um, but yes, I know he was uh, highly respected. I, I probably have to admit, you know, he like like Kraftwerk, he mentioned before, was highly influential and was doing stuff that you know, has become commonplace nowadays. He was one of the early pioneers of his art form, so you know, I give him a salute for uh, for the innovation, certainly. It's, it's interesting. I, I actually, I going back and listening to what Gary Newman did, I, 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 I get it now much more than I did when it came out, and I, I enjoy it much more now, which is... Uh, which is strange, but um, but Gary Newman came out to Australia last year, and uh, and Abe right. Fenton came out with him, um, and has, he has basically been his keyboard player and musical collaborator since uh, since the album Jagged, and Jagged was was the the turning point in in Gary Newman's career where he became cool again. There was, you know, his initial career didn't last, I, I guess, maybe three or four albums and, and really he seemed to disappear, certainly in, in Australia, I think, um, in, the, in the UK, off the radar. But but um, Aid Fenton really reinvented his career with, with the album Jagged and it was very dark and very heavy in, in the sort of realms of the Nine Inch Nails sort of stuff. And, okay. And, and I must admit that I've, you know, it's taken me a few listens in retrospect to go back and, and appreciate it because it just passed me by at the time. But um, but Aid Fenton has has also a, a, a parallel career as sort of a dub DJ dude now, which is totally not what I'm into at all. Nothing, you know, I don't listen to that sort of stuff. I don't really like it. But I, as as a, a sort of um, as an exercise of just finding out some more about him when uh, when Gary Newman was coming out here I went and listened to some of Aide Fenton's stuff and it blew my mind it's it's um it's he just he hit the way he I think it's his his it shows his um his expertise as an engineer and again in a similar thing to what, what I talked about Kraftwerk he does things with sound and to listen to what this guy does on a pair of headphones just really blows my mind and and you know a 20 minute piece with with lots of sequencing happening and and lots of dubbing and stuff but it really is great stuff like for me it's got it's it's got a credibility that most for me most of that music doesn't have so um, again very different but um yeah if um if any of, of Gary Newman stuff tickles anybody's fancy from from all those years ago, I think you'll really like what uh, what Aid Fenton does and and Chase so the Dragon what was his is album called? Oh, Chase the Dragon. Chase Chase the Dragon. He's he's there's there's a lot of samples on his website. So if you do the Google thing and, and check out Aid Fenton's website, um, there's a lot of stuff on there to listen to, like full length pieces, you know, twenty minute pieces, and it really is. Yeah, really worth a listen, man. Um, he does two. He he's, he must have a great life. He tours around the world doing you know these DJ things, and um, and then goes and plays keyboards with Gary Newman, and you know has this unbelievable setup of a studio in his in his home, from what I understand. So yeah, <laughs> all power to him. Mm. All right. Uh, okay. So my number four um, is the aforementioned Steve Morse band.
particular, uh, his debut album called The Introduction, well, quite appropriately. Um, now, I've already gone and mentioned you know, my experience at seeing Steve Morse as part of uh, the guitar trio, and actually, I think on the same tour, yeah, it was definitely the same tour, he did a guitar clinic at um, the lamented, long-lamented, gone uh, Brashes store in uh, Moorabbin Dam here in Melbourne. And I, I was really surprised because, you know, watching him on stage, you know, I, I hadn't thought anything about his height, but he was really short. <laughs> I didn't notice that while he was on stage, but, um, but he just seemed like a really, really ultra-friendly guy and answered questions all night from the audience. Uh, it, it was really great just to sort of see him in this informal uh, in this informal environment. Uh, look, so his history, which I hadn't known hitherto, uh, to that point, he'd been in, um, in the Dixie Dregs, who I mentioned before, uh, which was you know, sort of, they successfully combined jazz and country and Baroque music and Southern rock. Uh, and, and he pretty much continued on that tradition, it seems, in in, uh, in the Steve Morse band, at least you know, the first couple of albums. I haven't sort of really followed up beyond uh, the, the introduction and his follow-up called Stand Up. Um, but you know, it seems like he'd been a real favourite of the guitar community and he'd won the best guitarist in Guitar Player magazine for about five years straight, which you know, sent him into the Parthenon and no longer could qualify to you know, get, get uh, the award. Uh, the Dregs broke up, I think, in 1983 and uh, you know, a year later, he had the Steve Morse Band album. Uh, probably as um, another aside, uh, the um, I can't remember. Did we did we uh, talk about Rod Morgenstein in our favourite drummers episode? One? I think his name did come up, and I think you just mentions at the end. Oh, okay. Yeah, he an absolutely incredible player. Uh, Rod Morgenstein had been the uh, drummer for the Dixie Dregs uh, as well. So, although apparently from what I read on uh, Wikipedia, I, I believe he wasn't the original drummer of the Steve Morse band. It was someone else who uh, might have gotten another gig, and so he you know, called on Rod. But um, I think you know, no great loss that this other guy didn't show up because you know Rod's absolutely fantastic player, uh, you know, a great technical player, but also a great groove player. And, and um, yeah, he he smiles a lot, and I, I like seeing musicians who smile a lot. I don't know, it's just just me. Um, but uh, yeah, look, but yeah. Uh, there was a good, uh, oh, and our oh, bass player should mention called uh, Jerry Peak. I don't know anything else that he's done outside of the Steve Morse band. I should probably do the Google thing and find out. But yeah, this first album, the introduction, opened up with um, a really great piece, which I heard played. Oh, I heard covered by a Melbourne uh, jazz fusion band. Uh, the band was called Loose Chain, which featured featured Virgil Donati on drums and uh, Mark Dominey on guitar and you know, a guy who's still doing re- making some really wonderful albums now called Joe Kendama on uh, keyboards. They did uh, this tune Cruise Missile uh, which was you know, a really fantastic calling card, a great way to open up uh, Steve's uh, opening album. Uh, I guess it's this jazz fusion sort of thing but really the rest of the album does cover a uh, similar sort of rockabilly, jazz, country, southern rock blend that I mentioned before. Uh, in, in, in that way, I guess Steve Morse, even if he's not similar in style of the guitar playing, but his musical influences sound like he follows a similar pattern to the uh, 
the late, very lamented uh, Danny Gatt, who I'll be talking about with a bit later on as well. Um, I guess in some cases, you know, to be, to be taking all those influences might you know, get one accused of being a bit scattergun and uh, indecisive, but I personally saw it as an absolute strength because every tune was, uh, every composition was great and he was equally adept at all styles. Uh, I get, you know, the classical stylings that he had, I, I, I don't know, maybe you could compare him to Steve Howe in, uh, in that way. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Um, and um, yeah, a hodgepodge, but definitely a good hodgepodge. So um, yeah, uh, and and yeah, we were speaking before that he replaced Richie Blackmore in Deep Purple. And uh, look, I'll, I'll get off my high horse. It's going to get me into trouble. I know that you know, saying things about people has gotten me into trouble with certain members of our musical community. But you know, um, I like Deep Purple, but it just. Oh well. Anyway, there he goes. Maybe maybe it was a chance to uh, play with his heroes, and um, but he's still doing the Steve Morse band thing nowadays. And um, oh, I, I, the other thing I just found out for two years, uh, Steve worked as a commercial airline pilot. So is is there anything that this man cannot do? Well, wow. well. Wow. So um, yeah, if if you haven't heard um, uh, the track that we're playing, Cruise Missile, before. Um, you, just go buy yourself a copy of the introduction. Uh, the whole album is worth hearing, but even if you don't like the rest of it, and I can't imagine why you wouldn't, um, but uh, it's worth it for Cruise Missile alone, or just type Cruise Missile into YouTube. There is a, uh, a rather blurry, probably ripped from videotape copy of the film clip you know, when it was probably played on MTV of uh, the band playing Cruise Missile. It's just, yeah, fantastic stuff. So... Um, Yep, that's uh, my choice number four. So um, we'll have one more choice each uh, before going to a bit of a break. So what's uh, your album number five? Well, only number five. Um, a, a fellow that I've already spoken about and we, we talked about when we did our, uh, our drummers uh, list and it's uh, the, the first solo album and it was called um, Protocol by the wonderful Simon Phillip. And this is this is one of those those albums that that critically it was it was fairly well panned as a as a bland drummers album, uh, and I guess if if you weren't a Simon Phillips fan or weren't familiar with him, I can see how you would you would say that at the time uh, when when this came out, Simon Phillips was in Australia touring with uh, with Mick Jagger, and he did a, a drum clinic, and he just blew my mind how. How um, 
not apart from being a fantastic player and a great technician, but his his just love for his instrument and and his love for talking about the aspects of drumming and 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 he didn't raise a sweat, did he? No, I, actually, actually, you and you mentioned Alan White before. That's that's one thing about uh, when I saw Alan White uh, back in April. The technical stuff he did with yes, he didn't even raise a sweat. I couldn't believe it. It was just, but yes, I digress. Um, and and so yeah, Simon Phillips spoke at length when I when I went and saw him at the drum clinic about how we went about making this first solo album of his. Um, and and he's, he's he plays every instrument on it, which is is predominantly keyboard and um, and drums. But he he really explained how how he sort of discovered the piano and and how he could relate a percussion instrument to the percussion aspects of piano playing. And I found that really fascinating. And I guess that made this a lot more interesting for me. But even in, in and and as um, Simon Phillips's solo career has progressed, he's just taken it to levels that you wouldn't believe. Um, the latest stuff he's been doing has been very traditional sort of jazz trio stuff. And man, he is as good as anybody as Buddy Rich, as you know, Max Roach, as any of those guys. He is just fantastic at that sort of stuff. But when you think of what, you know, what Simon Phillips has also done, you know, he, he's played with the likes of Judas Priest and, and Michael Shanker and Whitesnake. How did he go from that to a jazz trio? It's just mind-blowing how he can how he can sort of make that change. But yeah, Protocol, I, I think, is a really interesting, interesting album to, to sort of start how how you've seen this virtuoso develop his solo career and 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 very different to his career as a musician that most people know him from i mentioned mick jagger but he you know he spent quite a few years in the who when kenny jones left did a great job in the who um and has played with just about everyone you mentioned sky before morrison and the, and the first time i heard simon phillips was a Unfortunately, a very short-lived band called 801, which had Francis Munkerman in it, oh, okay. and and Phil Manzanera was a guitar player, and um, and that, and that's actually in my uh, my honourable mentions because they only made one one sort of live album, and but there was was talk that they may get that together and do something again, and that was about you know back in I think 1981 maybe or even late 70s. So it'd be great to hear those guys again. They were quite a formidable. Uh, middle group but um yeah if, uh, if if you're familiar with anything simon phillips has done uh, with with some of the bands i've mentioned it's really interesting to go and listen to um to some of his solo albums good stuff mm. oh, look i like you i'm a huge fan of his uh drumming skills so it'd be interesting to see what his uh compositional skills uh are like but um yeah if you're a huge fan then uh, i'll take that as good recommendation good money i have to follow up on that all right, uh, I'll give one more uh, album and then we'll go for a quick break. And um, so, yeah, uh, this is a fellow who I mentioned in, uh, in, in the last thing I was talking about, uh, and that is Danny Gatton, and in specific, his album called Unfinished Business.
Danny Gatton had gone and made a series of albums uh, independently, made a couple of albums, uh, I think for Electra Records, uh, 88 Elmira, and Cruise and Deuces, which you know, are both really, really excellent albums. And the thing is, it, what I thought was quite interesting for you know major label, I mean, maybe apart from the production machine, he wasn't doing anything different to what he'd done on the independence. You know, he, they basically said, look, all right, just go for your life, do what it is that you do. Of course, mind you, given that um, Electra dumped him, I think, after Cruise and Deuces, uh, says maybe, well, maybe they didn't believe in him that much, I don't know, which is a real damn shame. Um, he was equally adept at rockabilly, jazz, and blues, and um, he, uh, he just, he had a real sense of fun in, in his playing. I mean, I, I think back in the early 90s when The Simpsons were still young, uh, and still, uh, maybe not a novelty, but it wasn't you know, the, the iconic thing that it is today. He was the one who, the, probably the first person to do this really formidable cover version of the theme tune from The Simpsons. Uh, and his, his originals and arrangements of covers were musically exciting. But you know, like I said about Sky before, and of course he's you know, really a long way from the sort of music of Sky, but the thing that they had in common was you know, a sense of fun above everything. I mean, look, you know, and his idol was Les Paul for crying out loud. You know, I mean, that gives you an idea, you know, about how good he was. And he, he not only played well, but he had, you know, supposedly an encyclopedic knowledge about uh, guitars. Um, unfortunately, in 1994, he locked himself up in a garage and shot himself. And there was no note left behind. There was no explanation. Um, really, really sad. But, like, you know, for years he'd been playing, I think, every... Monday and Wednesday night in some uh, little bar in uh, Washington, D.C. Um, you know, I ended up, I was in Washington, D.C. in 96 and thought, well, you know, if he'd been around, I'd have loved to have gone to see him. Really, truly sad that the music world had lost someone like that so senselessly. But um, you know, I, th I think in his time and posthumously, there'd been a huge number of studio and live albums. Uh, I think probably more posthumous albums than... Uh, uh, then when he was around, uh, a lot of live stuff has you know, come out of the uh, out of the vaults. Um, but this album, Unfinished Business, uh, it's you know, if you like you like rockabilly, you like uh, you like your jazz, you like your sense of fun. Uh, it, it is a guitar player's album, as I said. You know, Les Paul and you know probably Shed Atkins would be uh, to give you an idea as to where he was where he was going. Uh, with uh, a lot of the music that's on this album, but it's but it's exciting. There's um there's one piece on it called Fingers on Fire, which I imagine would have been a great soundtrack for a Keystone Cops film. Um, and he he plays um he plays you know, the, the classic tune Cherokee, which was ostensibly a tribute to Les Paul, but I'm pretty sure that Duke Ellington had uh, had played it as well. Uh, you know, there's Melancholy Serenade and Sleepwalk, um, you know, the old fifties classic beautiful tune and uh, his you know, absolutely scorching version of Georgia on my mind um, but you know, it, it, melody and fun above everything and he, he really had the, the chops to uh, shred that guitar but you know, a good tune was a good tune was a good tune which I think was uh, predominant in his mind. He had a great band uh, and re I think the first time I heard him might have been on um, uh, Billy Pinnell's radio program back in the early 90s on, on a Sunday night and uh, 
Billy was a great rave for him and uh, no, just someone who I wish I could have seen live. It would have been uh, really something very, very exciting. But um, anyway, we have his records, have his CDs to go by. So uh, yeah, look, I, I imagine that Unfinished Business is probably, a, I don't know, maybe not hard to find. Not Nothing's hard to find with the internet nowadays. But if you just want to walk into a CD store and get something off the shelf in 88 Elmira Avenue and uh, Cruise and Deuces, are probably quite easily available and they're also highly recommended as well as Unfinished Business. Any one of those albums could have uh, made the list. They're all fantastic. All right, I think we're at the halfway mark from uh, our list. Um, what do you reckon? Time to get a coffee or go take a piss or something like that, Michael? Oh, time, time to go and study the lyric sheets. <laughs> uh, yes, on all these instrumental albums. <laughs> all right. Okay, we'll, we'll go off and do that. We'll have a bit of a break. Uh, and uh, Michael and I will be back in a couple of minutes to uh, talk some more about our favourite instrumental albums. You're listening to Love That Album with Morris and Michael. When you're watching movies, are you sick of remakes, reboots, reimaginings, reinventions, and Reese Witherspoon? Are you fed up with movies where giant robots try to remake Enter the Dragon? Do you think that torture porn is vastly inferior to 1970s drive-in porn? Do you find Botox actresses with fake tits and action heroes with no chest hair a turn-off? Do movies where no single shot lasts more than two and a half seconds piss you off? Yeah, me too. That's why I do Paleo Cinema Podcast, a podcast for films more than 20 years old. So if you think that Sid Charisse is a guy and that Myrna Loy is a kind of metal you need Paleo Cinema Podcast. Go to paleo-cinema.com and do yourself a favour. Welcome back from break. Uh, Morris here in Melbourne and Michael over there in Adelaide. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 22. And... Just for something a little bit different this time around where rather than concentrating on a single specific album and going into any depth with it, we're just skimming our favourite instrumental albums, our top ten instrumental albums of all time, not going in any particular order, just talking about albums that uh, we've been digging on for a a number of years and um, it's been really interesting hearing uh, Michael's choices um, with... Thus far, we haven't had any crossover, but um, but you know, I've been digging, hearing him talking about the things that's been influencing him, and certainly you know some of those artists are artists I really like, uh, you know Simon Phillips and Stephen Howe. So um, let's see where else we go with the rest of the show. Uh, Michael, your album number six. Well, um, having said having said that, mate, I could have easily done talked about Sky One, but I, I do recall you mentioned that early <laughs> early in the piece when we were talking about doing this. So, but that that is indeed one of my favourite instrumental mm, albums. Mm. But uh, yeah, my, my next one is um, similar to the Simon Phillips album I spoke about, and uh, it's uh, it's an album called Power Play by Billy Cobham.
and, and when we did our um, when we did my show with our top ten drummers, mate. When we when we finished, I think the next day something something jogged my memory. I thought I didn't mention Billy Cobble. <laughs> what am I doing? And he is really. If anyone has seen or even you know hearing hearing Billy Cobham is one thing, but seeing him play is is another thing. He is just mind blowing. And and uh, and you mentioned I think you mentioned John McLaughlin before, and Billy Cobham is I guess most well known for 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 starting the Mahu Vishnu Orchestra with mm. the, with McLaughlin way back in the early seventies. But he's done some really interesting things, you know in really a jazz rock pioneer but the, the thing i really like about watching him play he, he plays like in a style that he doesn't play cross-handed but but when he he plays right he seems to be playing left-handed and when he plays hi-hat he's sort of playing the opposite and it's really weird to watch mm, mm. but but just he is such a great player and and plays and the interesting is uh, again and again similar to um to simon phillips i um i saw him in a drum clinic Oh wow! And, and and most of the stuff he does is actually with his little finger and his ring finger. So he's just where 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 a normal drummer would do a lot of wrist work, he's doing it all with these two little fingers. It's just oh, wow, yeah, really fascinating stuff. Um, so so Billy Cobham has done, as I said, so many different things and worked with you know Miles Davis and and just you know Carlos Santana and and just is a you know a legend in in, in that sort of field. But um, Power Play for me, it's probably an obscure album, and I just I happened to pick it up in in Bali, and I was over there just uh, just for a holiday, and you, and back in those days, you know, it was the uh, the the whole shop for two dollar cassette tapes. Yes, and I, and I grabbed this Billy uh, Billy Cobham cassette tape, and I listened to it for the entire holiday, and and I loved it. It's it's and in a similar way to the the Simon Phillips album that I, that I spoke about before. It's it's very of its time in the eighties. It's very electronicy, okay. um, and and it probably sounds a little bit dated now. But it's yeah for for what for what he was doing at the time, sort of taking jazz rock into into a sort of new era, but trying to be you know an eighties sound is is really quite weird. But I still you know it still gives, brings a smile to my face when I listen to it. So who who else is on the album? Well. Guys that I really don't know much about. There's um, a bass player by the name of Baron Brown, who, uh, who I'm really not familiar with, and and a couple of keyboard players, Jerry Atkins, and um, I can't even pronounce this guy's name. <laughs> on your gums. <laughs> so, on your guns. Yeah, on your uh, spelled O N A J E G U M B S. So, uh, oh. dear keyboard player. My apologies for uh, mispronouncing your name because I'm sure I have. But uh, yeah, like like I said, there's no one on there. You know, there's no big list of uh, of big name players on this. But it's um, yeah, you know, I, I think again, it was a bit like Simon Phillips, um, Billy Cobham, just stretching as a you know, in a compositional sort of context, and uh, and I guess using players that that you know complement what he was doing, but not necessarily take away from. Um, from the composition as it may, you know, as may happen if we had a, uh, a team of virtuosos in there. So, yeah, interesting stuff. Mm. Okay. Um, all right, we'll go on to my number six. And this is a band which, I, I, true to form for me, I've only discovered, you know, many, many years after the fact. I mean, for all I know, they may still be around, but um, uh, this is a band called Lost Straight Jackets, and I'm, 
referring to their album called The Utterly Fantastic and Totally Unbelievable Sound of Lost Straight Jackets. <laughs> I discovered Lost Straight Jackets by, um, I, I was on YouTube and I, I typed in, I wanted to um, see like a little clip, I wanted to hear the theme song from uh, Midnight Cowboy, and that's you know, that, that wonderful piece by composer John Barry, who'd written the score for that film. And rather than you know the music from the film itself coming up, what came up was um, you know, a YouTube clip of this band Lost Straight Jackets doing their cover of it. Uh, oh, okay. And uh, like the little uh, um, still image that you saw had a picture of these you know, these guys wearing Mexican wrestling masks. So I clicked on this, absolutely intrigued, and they became you know my new favourite band. They were just they were fantastic. So they're these um, four guys. I think originally out of Nashville. And they're, you know, really, they're one of the few bands around that have a mixture of Dick Dale and wrestling. Um, and it's, it's surf guitar, twang, and full Nelsons. Um, I only, you know, really, just seeing that film clip, they, they did an absolutely, you know, gorgeous version of that Midnight Cowboy theme. And it really sounded um, in, in their hands like it couldn't have been played any other way. The twang. They, they played it sensitively which uh, and quietly I mean since hearing uh, like uh, three or four of their of their other albums you know they they're a rock and surf band I've got to tell you but you know they just tackled this absolutely beautifully but it was just this bizarre image of uh, this band playing this absolutely gorgeous theme from the movie you know, but dressed with wrestling masks now I, I've no idea whether they've you know, done an unmasked thing like Kisshead, uh, whether anyone knows what their faces look like underneath, apart from you know, their friends and family. But um, uh, you know, this is—I'd hope they never take off the masks. You know, it's—it's it's just a good thing that they have going there. It's funny. So um, look, I've got about three or four of their albums since, um, and really, it could have been any one of them. I mean, they, they all sound very similar, but I—I I mean that in a good way. I mean, you know what you're getting. You like your surf guitar. You like your twang. You want that formula. You don't want anyone to tamper around with it. Um, I believe they might have actually even done 
one vocal album. I'm not sure, but I have heard that rumor. But for me, I'm, I'm just happy to listen to them, you know, dig out on them doing their instrumental stuff. Uh, so, as I said, the one I've picked is the utterly fantastic and totally unbelievable sound of Lost Straight Jackets, which might have even been uh, their first album. It's it's really it's a lot of fun. I don't know much else about their history, but if you like surf music, you like Dick Dale, if you like watching musos play in Mexican wrestling masks, then just get them. Get them. It's really great. And the tune we've been listening to is called Calhoun Surf. <laughs> so, so instead of putting any lyrics in their music, they've actually just incorporated them all into the title of the band. Yeah, exactly. Oh, the <laughs> look, the, the title is longer than the lyric to, uh, to any you know, 60s pop hit. You know, it's, it's, it took me <laughs> two and a half minutes just to say that, that album title. Fantastic. Yeah, Lost Straight Jackets. All right, so um, your album number seven. Okay, next next up is is my favourite guitar player on the planet, and um, and there may be a, a cringe factor in this if you haven't if you if you um, if you uh, equate Steve Vai with uh, his David Lee Roth days, you may have a cringe factor. But uh, his his solo career, and if you've seen him live, is uh, is just something else indeed. So uh, his first real album that that really made a mark, and and that I picked up on was. Uh, was an album called Passion and Warfare. Now, Stevie, now don't be nervous, honey, okay? I'm gonna go in and I'm gonna introduce you and then you're gonna come in with your guitar and you're gonna play that nice, nice music you were telling me about. And while you're doing that, I'll be sitting in the back of the room. We'll have such a good time. So don't you be nervous, honey. It'll relax everybody and we'll be so happy. I'm gonna go now, I'll introduce you, okay? Hands up! Now you kids, you all of you, calm down. That's good, okay? Everyone in your own seats, that's good, okay? Now, little Stevie Vai is going to play a composition on the guitar. He wrote it all by himself. Okay, Stevie, bring your three friends up. They can play with you. That's Steve Vai. What a nice little boy. I wrote this song for all my friends. When I grow up, I'm going to be a famous rock and roll guitar player. Love it. <laughs> Go ahead. This is my And, and this came out about 1990, um, and it was was after Steve I had done his stint with, with Roth. Um, but it, I guess I guess there's similarities. But he but he took his music into another place, and and um, the 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 virtuosity of what Steve Vai plays is one thing, but 
but the thing that I really like about Steve Vai that sets him apart from anybody, and and you you really may not get this until you see him play, is 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 a that how much fun this guy is to see play. Mm. He's really an entertainer. He is so funny. He is such an endearing guy. He loves his audience. He plays up to his audience. Uh, he just you know you you can't not not have a smile on your face when when you go and see this guy play. But also he is elegant. And I mean that to, in a way that he, 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 his playing flows. I've never seen anyone else. You know, a lot, a lot of guitar players, the best guitar players in the world, when they do something very intricate, have a, have a pained look on their face. And, yeah. you know, you can see that it's, it's really, you know, it's really stretching them. Steve Vai look like, looks like he is conducting a symphony. And it is just an unbelievable thing to watch. Um, but this album, I guess, for his career really started started him off as a as a, a world renowned solo artist but well, so I, I know he had a couple of instrumental oh no sorry, a couple of uh, independent albums uh, out before that uh, a sure. guy who I was playing with in a band um, I think back in the day had a couple of, uh, had an independent album or two uh, but yeah like you I guess Passion of the Warfare um, was where I first picked up on it too You've picked an absolutely fantastic, a corker of a track in the audience's listening. Well, for me, mate, it's, it, that shows what fun Steve Vai is, and and it could have been. I'm not sure if you, if you, when you were a kid, if you loved all those um, Cheech and Chong, Chong albums. And I, I was going to mention that class, <laughs> class, absolutely. absolutely. But the, the move, Cheech and Chong movies never did it for me. I love their albums. Their yep. their record albums before they made movies are still just absolutely brilliant and and the audiences listening could be off a Cheech and Chong album indeed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, that, and, yeah, that's yeah. exactly what I thought, you know. That, that, um, and now here's, here's Officer, whatever his name is, to talk to you boys about drugs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but I can also, you know, the, the way the, 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 um, the scenario introduces this this with the, you know, the teacher introducing little Stevie Vai to come and play in front of his sixth grade class or whatever it is. You know, I can actually picture him doing that when he was that age, which I think is really funny. But um, I, I just want to read a quote. There's a quote of, uh, of how Steve Vai sums up this album. Jimi Hendrix meets Jesus Christ at a party that Ben Hur threw for Mel Blanc. Oh, fantastic. And when you, That's a best quote. How good is that? Where, where, did you, where did you find that? It's actually on the on the on the cover notes or or on a blurb I just found on the net on the on the on the, on on Passion Warfare the album. So isn't that great? I love that. That is fantastic. Maybe we ought to use that to describe our podcast. Well, if, if if we had one moniker of the talent of Mel Blank, <laughs> he was one of my favourite people of all time. A clever. Yeah. All right. So, yeah. So. So passion warfare, and and it also features for the love of God, which um, which I get is still the most enduring Steve Vai song. Right, I think it's the very one of the few tunes that he plays at every show, um, and that um, yeah, just brings the house down. And actually, the guitar player in my band has uh, has given me strict instructions for it to be played at his funeral. So I guess he's <laughs> not be that I'll be alive longer than him. But, no. but there's a little just. Well, while I'm at it, um, Morris says a great quote about um, 
about for the love of God as well. Because Steve I, for for all the great things he is, he's a he's a very eccentric guy in his own lovable way. This, this is a this is this describes what he did before he recorded for the love of God. He fasted for ten days, and then recorded the song on the fourth day of the fast as as some sort of sort of really religious. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you, you you know what I'm saying? This yeah. is it's crazy stuff. But but when you I guess when you think that. Um, you know, Steve Vai's initial sort of, I guess, um, work was with the uh, the late great Frank Zappa, mm. sort of, and and he does describe himself as as the uh, the weird dude. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> who's who's weird, a Vai or Zappa? Well, he he he, uh, he he tells a story, and I think he did it last time I saw him play, which was only a couple of months ago when he was in Australia with G Three. Uh, he um when he auditioned for the gig with um. With Alcatraz, which was a, a Californian band with Graham Bonnet, who Ingvar uh, Malmsteen was the uh, original guitar player, and that um, they just thought he was far too weird to get the gig. You know, he just he was amazed that they got the call saying, "Oh, you know, got the, the weird guy got the job." Sort of <laughs> appeared to uh, Zappa's sense of humour. Something like that. Mm. All right, uh, we're going to my album number seven. And oh, I've not written down the year this came out, but this would be, I don't know, I'm guessing about 1955. Um, the artist who I've chosen, I mean, there's, it could have been anything from his career because there's so many uh, classic albums. Actually, I've, I've mentioned him by name already earlier on in the night. Uh, and it's Miles Davis and his record of Porgy and Bess. Actually, technically speaking, I don't think I should just attribute this album to Miles Davis. Really, I should attribute this to Miles Davis and Gil Evans. Um, Gil Evans as the arranger and Miles Davis as, uh, you know, I guess, leader of the orchestra. Uh, and it, I'm really, with this album, we're dealing with you know these two heavyweight teams um, of American music. So, you know, Miles, Miles and Gil and you know, George and Ira Gershwin. Uh, you know, this was... It took a lot of balls on Miles's part, and you know, of course, Miles was never one to be short on doing ballsy things. But you know, it took a lot of balls to take something that was already considered an iconic uh, piece of music and do it in his fashion. Now, he, and he, you know, but he was already maybe not you know, mega huge. He wasn't you know, the icon that he became to be. Um, but you know, he was already successful to a point um, when you know he, he did his take on you know this 
classic American work. Uh, and you know, he, throughout his time, he had a, you know, a bunch of other uh, collaborations with Gil Evans. And you know, I don't know if you've actually ever read Miles Davis' autobiography. Um, Miles had this habit of calling everyone, whether he loved them or he loathed them, he always called them a motherfucker. Um, so, you know, he liked in a loving way. Well, well, sometimes in a loving way and sometimes in a not-so-loving way. You know, he'd, 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 someone who had contempt for him say, man, that guy was a motherfucker. But, you know, when he loved them, you know, he said, oh, Gil Evans, man, he was such a cool motherfucker. Um, uh, I'll tell you off here, you know, a, a great story out of the book that's you know, probably, I don't want to sort of you know, bore the audience with on the podcast but just you know, thinking about his motherfucker thing um, is, is quite funny um, but um, yeah look he, he admired it, it really took a lot of balls I think for him to tackle it but um, you know Miles didn't lack the ego or the chops to do this and you know Gil Evans arrangement is just magnificent the production work on this is fantastic um, I, I think that you know they're not the only two uh, people, you know, Miles and Gil Evans to, to tackle this. I think maybe it's a Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald uh, version of uh, the album out there. Maybe even, oh, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm deluding myself, but maybe uh, Cleo Lane, John Dankworth. I don't know. I, might, I should have looked this up before I went on there, but I seem to have some recollection that they have some association with the recording of Paul Bean Bass. I might be completely wrong about that, but. I'll look that up after the show. Should have done it before. Anyway, so on this recording of Paul Gim Bess, Miles used, as well as a full-on jazz orchestra, he used you know, uh, members of his core band, uh, Julian Cannibal Adderley uh, on, on saxophone, Paul Chambers on bass, and Jimmy Cobb on drums, uh, along with you know this wider jazz orchestra to put this thing together. Um, I love it. The music, it, it, it really swings. It was always branded a jazz work of sorts, but you know, the Davis and Evans collaboration really sort of highlights um, the song's strength. And you know, Miles has got that you know beautiful, wistful-sounding trumpet that he has, uh, which you know really suits the material. But the whole orchestra played to perfection. Miles is the leader, but it really is a great ensemble. Uh, recording to my mind. Um, the highlights, you know, well, you know, the ubiquitous summertime uh, gone with some uh, really nice Jimmy Cobb uh, solo drum passages. Uh, Bess, who is my woman now, which is just so beautiful and mournful. I love it. And the track that we're listening to at the moment, it ain't necessarily so. Um, really, oh, look, there could have been any number of Miles Davis recordings to pick, depending on your preferred era. If I hadn't picked this one, um, uh, really, there's a, um, I think the last album that he recorded for Columbia, uh, but didn't get released until he was well into his Warner Brothers years, was an album called Aura, uh, which I think he recorded uh, in Sweden. Uh, that's a really great album. Um, and I, I don't mind some of his early 70s funk, uh, in particular the album that he recorded in dedication to uh, boxer Jack Johnson. Um, but Really, I think in the end, Paul Gim Bess is my hands down uh, all-time favourite Miles Davis album. So um, that's the one I picked. So, all right, there you go. Um, your album number eight. Number eight well, was a struggle as well. I I, I tried to pick. I, I couldn't decide on a uh, on a Tommy Emanuel album, and then I I sort of got thinking, well, you know, really Phil Emanuel is maybe not as well known, but 
every much as uh, every bit as as great a guitar player in my opinion. So uh, I ended up choosing uh, the album that Tommy and Phil made together called Terra Firma. And, and as I said, Tom, Tommy and, um, and Phil have made great albums, both of them, uh, and, and continue to do so. But um, yeah, just, just because this one features them both, which, which strange enough, they don't seem to work together a real lot. I only recall them ever touring together once. Is, is Phil still living in Australia? I know that Tommy relocated to the States, but where's yeah, Phil living nowadays? He's in Nashville. In Nashville. Mm. Um, yeah, Phil, I... I my understanding is Phil is still in Australia. It was only a couple of years ago that um, I don't know if you remember a band from the from the seventies from Wales, a band called Budgie. Or a, a, I've heard the name. I've heard they the were name. A, a much loved sort of progressive heavy rock trio, and, and they're still going strong. And they were out here a couple of years ago and played at a club in Adelaide. And um, I, I, I was chatting to the uh, to the to the vocalist, and he, uh, he said. We've got to see this Phil Emanuel guy. He's blown my mind. I don't know <laughs> he'd never, you know, had never come across Phil Emanuel and just was he was he was the support act for the for the tour and and he just blew these guys away. So I'm pretty sure he's still around in Australia, but he certainly does keep a fairly low profile for for whatever reason. You don't see too much of him. But um, yeah, Terra Firma is is an interesting album. I, I don't think it actually sits together particularly well as a CD because it's just all over the place but mm, mm. but but I guess what it does do it, it shows what you know the versatility of these guys like there's 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 tunes on there that, that Phil and um, and Tommy have written on their own but you know there's there's Mozart pieces on there there's, yeah, there's, that's right. there's, a, there's a cover of an ACDC tune so you know it really does cover everything in between I think there's a um, no, there's a yeah, there's a Hank Marvin tune in there, so you know it really does go everywhere. But but in the same way as I, you know, I spoke about Steve Howe before, Tommy Emmanuel and Phil Emmanuel can play anything and make it their own, which, which is really lovely. And, and you know, I guess you know, in Australia, we, we, um, you know, I, Tommy in particular is um, is certainly one of the, the, our biggest instrumental exports of all time. I think he's. You know, he's people that do know him in the world, and that's, that's steadily growing. Just um, blown away with a great new tune. So, yeah. And, and he's, a, he's a drummer, too. That's right. Well, he initially was a drummer in um, Northern Bangkok. Who did he play for? Did he, I know, did he play for Dragon for a time? He played guitar with Dragon for a time. Okay. Um, I can't remember the name of the band, but it was Gold Tongue. 
Uh, yeah, and I, I have that somewhere. He's not actually a bad drummer. <laughs> Don't all you hate him? People, all the best people are. <laughs> uh, I'll drink to that. Hang on. Oh, no, I finished my tea. No, I'll, I'll drink to it later. Um, yeah, look, I remember seeing um, the Emmanuel Brothers on that Terra Firma tour playing at the Comedy Theatre here in Melbourne. Unfortunately, I, I think that you know, uh, Tommy and Phil decided, oh, we're playing the Comedy Theatre, you might crack a few gags in between tunes. I just wanted to sort of you know, quote that Frank Zappa album name, uh, Shut Up and Play Your Guitar. They, uh, you know, they were fantastic musicians, but um, yeah, I think some of their comedy, well, so-called comedy, left a little bit to, to be desired. But um, yeah, no, they had a great band. Um, there, was a, there was a really impressive drummer that they had. Uh, you probably have seen him before as well outside of the Emmanuel uh, context, a guy called Kevin Murphy, or Kevin Muppy, as I think they used to call him. Do you remember him? I don't, no. Oh, no absolutely splendid drummer. I remember, um, I think, going to see, it might have been um, Tommy doing a, a guitar clinic, and he called out Kevin Murphy to um, to play a tune with him, and uh, Kevin came out and uh, just brought out a pair of brushes and just gently played on a on a set of yellow pages. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, so maybe they were a little bit funny, okay, but... But uh, yeah, no. The, uh, otherwise, yeah, musically fantastic show, and, and uh, yeah, that Terra Firma album. Yeah, look, while it is, I guess, a little bit of a hodgepodge stylistically, and yeah, yeah, the the Mozart was at Rondo while at Turk, um, and the ACDC stuff. I saw that as a strength. Uh, maybe not every tune hit the money for me, but um, but yeah, certainly their their playing couldn't be denied, and they uh, they at the best, their best compositions were really strong too. So, uh, yeah, no, yeah, that's a, that's a great pick. That's a really good pick. All right, uh, my my number eight. Well, as I said, the eighth in my list, not number eight because I'm not going in any order, is an unusual one because it's sort of a tribute album, and and it's the man who they're going in tribute to. I actually haven't put in my top ten list, which is really quite bizarre. But um, the the performer who I'm talking about is a guitarist who's Primarily known, he was you know, in his day. He was in one of the biggest bands in the world, and then he went off and got very quiet. I'm talking about Andy Summers and his tribute album to Thelonious Monk called Green Chimneys. about this album 
is it's a guitar player doing a tribute album to a piano player and it was also Andy Summers a known unconventional uh, rock guitar player playing the music of a very unconventional jazz pianist uh, now okay Summers obviously most famously known as one third of the police and I don't know I really think that he's been very unfairly omitted he's been all Maybe not quite forgotten. I, mean, I guess within guitar playing circles, there are people who acknowledge him. But in the general public's eyes, uh, you know, he's really a guy who should be you know, more highly thought of as a guitar player, not just as you know one third of the police. I mean, I guess you know with a personality and an ego as strong as Sting's, it might have been quite hard to um, to top that. But uh, you know, really, uh, Summers. Just an incredibly inventive guitar player, and you know, all you got to do is listen to um, these uh, uh, his guitar solo in, in um, the Police song "Driven to Tears," or his own really Eastern-sounding uh, composition uh, by the Police off their Synchronicity album called "Mother," and that, that tune is absolutely—it's bizarre as all get go. Um, and I think he likes the unusual and, and the discord which uh, makes him you know, really the perfect musician to tackle uh, the music of Thelonious Monk. Well, I once read an article that compared you know, Monk's piano playing to uh, his contemporary Bud Powell. And from a technical perspective, the article had said that Monk was not necessarily in the same class as Bud Powell. You know, Powell was you know, technically perfect. But, you know, but for Monk, bringing his own style of really ragged, but righteous guitar, okay, righteous piano playing to his music. In that way, he sort of had it all over Powell in, in my eyes. Um, and I'd say the same applies for Andy Summers uh, over you know, most conventional guitar heroes who are really known for precision playing or, or their speed runs. Uh, you know, I don't need to quite need names. You know, there's a dime a dozen. Uh, but for me, Andy Summers really stands out. Uh, I mean, you know, given his unusual style, there's no surprise that he'd gone and created a, you know, a couple of albums, at least with uh, King Crimson uh, uh, maestro Robert Fripp. Uh, on this album, uh, Andy, he, really, he sensibly stays true to the spirit of Monk rather than um, trying to actually make the music sound identical to Monk's versions and you know there's there's some of the you know, more famous Thelonious Monk tunes like Evidence and Rhythm and Ning uh, Ruby My Dear uh, and you know some less well familiar ones at least less familiar to me called Brilliant Corners and Ugly Birthday uh, the highlight for me is the song uh, uh, well yeah, this is actually one that has a vocal the one tune that has a vocal on the album it's with Sting uh, doing um, his version uh, Summers and Sting's version of Rounds Midnight which for me is the greatest jazz song of all time and it's nice to see that you know Andy has probably gone and pulled Sting into line and said you know look I know that you like to go over the top don't be restrained and to Sting's credit he is restrained here and he does an absolutely beautiful job uh, the band features um, the core band is a uh, Andy himself on guitar, a bass player I've never heard of called Dave Carpenter, uh, and session drummer Peter Erskine, 
and also features on some of the tunes a great keyboard player who played with Danny Gatton, who I spoke about before, called Joey DeFrancesco, uh, doing some really nice stuff on Hammond B3. And in the liner notes of the album, uh, Andy tells the story as how, as a 16-year-old, he took a six-hour cold train trip down to London to uh, see Monk play, and he said it was just one of those you know, epiphany moments in his in his life. You know, just said it was just an absolutely phenomenal thing. And you know, given how a lot of uh, rock guitar heroes like to say, you know, you know, nothing wrong with that. That you know, Jimi Hendrix was their hero, or Eric Clapton was their hero. It's really interesting, and uh, to hear that you know, a great guitar player like Summers cites uh, a piano player as one of his all-time heroes. And actually, the the, the album that followed this um, was called Peggy's Blue Skylight, which was Andy Summers' tribute to. Um, uh, Charles Mingus, so you know, a, a bass player and and piano player. Uh, so I, I mean, I'm sure that you know, uh, Summers had you know a lot of conventional guitar heroes as well. But it's nice that he chose to do these tribute albums to um, these players of, of other instruments uh, because the composition style uh, came first before everything. Not. Uh, not guitar stylings or instrumental stylings, although I mean I guess there's a lot of that too. Um, so look, this is this is a really great album, um, and the piece we've been hearing underneath this is uh, a really for me lovely tune called "Ugly Beauty," and that really for me I think it's it's a great title because it pretty much uh, describes uh, a lot of Monk's playing. It's um, you know, got this discordant stride piano style it's discordant but absolutely beautiful um uh, yeah a, a great composition and a great description of, i think of uh monk's music and andy summer's approach to monk's music in general yeah, um, that, that sounds great man. I, and i'm not familiar with that at all so um just between between you and me at the risk of being completely incorrect and um i know it's absolutely wrong so don't Make a copy of that and send it to me. No, no, I, I'd, I'd never do that because that's politically incorrect and, and completely illegal. So no, I, I, I couldn't do that, and you wouldn't be able to send me your address for me to not send that to you. So, so no, we can't have that. No. <laughs> okay, um, album number nine. Okay, we're nearly nearly to the end, and and as we said, not in any particular order. Um, next one is is I hope people. Well, I'm not sure if anyone remember these guys or not. Uh, from Melbourne, a uh, an electronica band from Melbourne. From well, this this album is from 1980, and it's the album is called Implosion, and the band is called Cybertron. <laughs>
So as, as I said, Melbourne guys, and I'm not sure if anyone in Australia remembers these guys, and I'm not sure. I don't really remember how I discovered them. I, I think there was a there was a late night television show on on the Seven Network back in the late seventies, early eighties called Night Mood, and they played Lee Simon uh, was the was a host who was a well known Melbourne DJ with the droopy and, droopy dog eyes. Did they? <laughs> um, they did play obscure things that that you know didn't get mainstream. Uh, Exposure, which I guess was the, the theory of the show, but and I think that's where I saw them play a Cybertron clip. And as I said, these guys are from Melbourne, and the, it, it's basically a, a duo. Um, the, the main synthesizer player was a guy by the name of Steve Maxwell von Braun, um, and uh, his partner in crime was a guy by the name of Jeff Green, who was also uh, a keyboard player. But the interesting thing about, and I think they made they made an album called Colossus before this one, which is a great album as well. And I think um, there's a, they, their first album was a self-titled album, mid-70s. So I'm not even sure if I've got a copy hiding anywhere, but they're, they're just about impossible to get these days. But um, the Implosion album from 1980 has been uh, re- lovingly remastered and reissued by uh, the good people at Aztec Music. Ah, wonderful who, people. Who, who unfortunately have gone out of business, I hear, which is very... Are you strange. serious? Yep. A- Aztec, yeah. when did this happen? Uh, only recently. I, I read it, um, you know, maybe a couple of months ago. But, um, yeah, they've gone into receivership, so very oh, sad. And, you know, unfortunately, it's a reflection of, of the way things are that, you know, to... Um, and I guess they've got a limited market, you know, they're, they're releasing, you know, classic albums from Australia that really... I guess have very little, um, you know, marketability outside of Australia. Um, but yeah, really, you know, Gil Matthews did did so much with Aztec Music to uh, preserve the history of uh, of Australian music from the last, or, you know, from from I guess the the mid sixties to the to the early eighties. So mm. uh, yeah, very sad. But uh, um, and inter- uh, the interesting thing about Implosion, and it's as I said, it's very electronica. In a way, you know, reminiscent of, of Tangerine Dream and Craftwork. But the interesting thing, and, and speaking of Gil Matthews, Gil Matthews, uh, although he, uh, he he engineered this, he uh, he actually plays live drums on it. Which, okay, which gives it a totally different feel to to the likes of Craftwork or the likes of Tangerine Dream. It is a bit more Hawkwind if you if you're familiar with Hawkwind. No, that it's that it's Hawkwind a sort of, I guess. Um, have been around in, in the UK since the early 70s or even late 60s and are still going, but a sort of a, an electronic band, but um, have a, um, a vocalist and, and, and sort of have taken that genre into, into their own and will really made it their own. Um, and I, I think Cybertron musically were a little bit like that, but also featured a lot of saxophone, which which doesn't, again, with live drums, doesn't really fit, but it does sort of work well, and it's it's an interesting record. As I said, Implosion, I have seen it around. It, it is available in um, in CD stores in Australia, so, um, yeah, interesting stuff. But, you know, not a lot of stuff like this was made in Australia, which I found really interesting. And, um, well, I guess, you know, because you, you, when did you say this, like, 1980, 79, 80? Well, these, these, got the, these guys... The, the band was around from sort of, I think, 1975 to, you know, very early 80s. So. Well, I mean, given that, you know, like at the Australian music scene, uh, there was 
I guess in a lot of the pub rock scene. Absolutely. Uh, they would they have fitted no. in with that? No, no. <laughs> absolutely not. And I, I I I don't. I'm not not absolutely sure, but I don't think they ever performed live at all. But uh, but but then again, having said that, you know, having Gil Matthews twiddling the knobs for them and playing drums for them, it's got quite a rocky, you know, tough sound. It's it's interesting. It's um. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if any if there's anything kicking around that, that's sort of readily available on the internet on YouTube or anything that people might be able to have a listen without trying to dig up the CD. But um, and I don't know even if there's a, you know any sort of website that exists about these guys. I've, unfortunately, I think they're all all but forgotten. But like I said, um, the good folks at Aztec Music, I have seen it around. I'm I'm pretty sure that a couple of years ago there was like I don't know three or four DVD set put together. Of bands who had appeared on Night Moves, so maybe there's a you know, better yeah, no, nice chance that they might be on there. Yeah, no, I have that, mate. We're not on it, but uh, um, yeah, you know, and that, and actually mentioning that, it's, that is a great, um, great DVD because it's got a lot of um, a lot a lot of interviews too that Lee Simon did with. Um, with, uh, well, not just lots of Australian guys, but lots of people that were in Australia touring at the time, and yeah, and yeah. it's a a, you know, it's a really interesting snapshot of, of that, uh, I guess. Absolutely. Real time capsule. All right. Um, okay, so given that you've gone for the Melbourne theme, um, I'm also going for the Melbourne theme this time. Uh, uh, I'm gonna, I want to talk a bit about a Melbourne band called Silver Ray, and in particular their first album called This Is Silver Ray. say, oh, I don't know, it would be in the early noughties, you know, 2000, 2001. Um, now, Melbourne radio station 3 Triple R, you know, back in the early noughties, they did, you know, really what was unthinkable, even for a community radio station that's not bound by, you know, commercial radio concerns. Uh, they played on high rotation, not just, you know, on a couple of specialist shows, they played now, on the breakfast program, they played every chance they could get um, a 15-minute rambling tune called New Love by what was then a new Melbourne trio called Silver Ray. Now, the instrumentation was drums, guitar, and keyboard. Now, here are the, here are the things about New Love, right? So, we've got a 15-minute track, largely with no structure and ramble. About nine to ten minutes of the running time was like listening to meditation music. It had no vocalist, and 
it was a demo with no plans of it being released. Any one of these criteria would have probably anywhere else got the CD used as like a you know, plate for some commercial radio executive to sniff coke off. But what Triple R announcers realised to their credit that was, in addition to all these above elements that I've just named, it was a gorgeous piece of music. And without, oh, I don't know, it might not sound like a, um, a great description. I don't want to give the wrong, I don't want to give the wrong impression, but for real, I can't think of a better word to describe this music as than cinematic. Uh, it really would be out of place describing their music. Their music, they belonged in theatres, but the thing was they, they spent their existence um, playing in pubs. Now, I thought that they'd split up, but I've seen something that, you know, they might have even been playing as recently as a couple of years ago. So, I don't know, I'll just have to keep my eyes open. The guitarist is a guy called Cam Butler, who uh, I think, you know, has been doing a fair bit of work in his own right. Um, but really, like, I, I'd only seen them live a couple of times, but really, if you saw them, it was it was something that you'd never forget. Well, to give you another description, I mean, you know, cinematic. If you're a fan of the Dirty Three, and they're not quite like the Dirty Three, but it's the closest I can come to describing their music. Um, now, the thing was, this, you know, as I said, Triple R had gone and played New Love over and over again. Gorgeous piece of music, but can you imagine the fans' disappointment when this first album, This Is Silver Ray, came out, and we'd been waiting to be able to have a copy of New Love in our hot little hands, and it didn't appear on the album. It was not on the album. This, you know, two notes, it didn't matter to us. You know, re-record it. Give us a demo. We don't care. But no, they decided. I heard an interview with the keyboard player where she said, "Nah, that's 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 old school. We're past that. We're beyond that." Of course, I think the fans must have spoken loudly and longly at, at their second album. They named it New Love. They put it on there, but. Um, really that what made them so great on this demo was really came to the fore in this full album i think the shortest piece on the album is about six minutes or so um, it's not a long album though i mean really they could have filled it the full 80 minute time but i think it's all i know about 50 minutes or something like that so there's a couple of 10 12 minute pieces and the rest is six seven minutes or something like that and really they they were i think three friends who just really love to make this grand flowing cinematic music with loose structures it's it's not as i said it's not art rock uh, or heavily arranged or constructed it's a lot of it's improvised but um absolutely beautiful the track we've been listening to um, under me talking is i think a, a perfect description of their music is a tune called majestic and it pretty much describes you know, how i feel about uh, all of their music and really it's not the sort of music that you imagine being played in the pubs but that's what they did it, it, it worked but I would love to have seen them play in Melbourne in somewhere like the Palais Theatre or, or even the Athenaeum you know, just a, a small theatre it would have gone down such a treat but yeah really wonderful band I, I, I don't know they, they may still be working but I haven't heard uh, heard of them doing anything in recent years so uh, if you're out there and you know anything about them send them an email I'd love to know what they're up to. Uh, well, I reckon it was oh, probably 18 months ago I actually interviewed Cam Butler on the show. So wow, well, okay. still making music and I'll, uh, I shall dig up um, the CD that he sent me and um, yeah, well, certainly not um, 
No, we wouldn't wouldn't be thinking of that. No, 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 not at all. Uh, But I will go actually through the uh, Sitting in the Bar in Adelaide archives and uh, track down that interview. I'd be so fascinated to hear what he has to say. He's an interesting guy, mate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, have you heard the Silver Ray stuff? Some of it, yeah. I think I actually played some of it, remember? So so how does the Cam Butler solo material like you know compared to silver ray is it similar bent or is it completely it's different similar but and it's really just um uh, and i'm stretching my memory here a bit but him and a and a, a guy playing the drums and that was it but they were they were actually doing a lot of live stuff with just two of them oh wow really yeah but and you know a lot of atmospherics but really interesting stuff mm, beautiful all right well we're, we're, we're down to our uh, last official picks um, so let's let's have it from you, Michael. What's your last album on your list? Last but not least, um, I had trouble picking picking this. I didn't have trouble picking the band, but a lot of trouble picking the album. But um, for for want of uh, of just throwing a dart <laughs> into the air, <laughs> um, it's uh, it's Tangerine Dream and their 1974 album Fate. Phaedra was the first, the first real Tangerine Dream album, I think, that, that brought them around the world out of Germany. Um, Virgin Records sort of took them, uh, took them under their wing, and 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 again, I can't remember where I I discovered Tangerine Dream, and, and but I distinctly remember, you know, being at, at high school in 1975, and and um, we, we had, um, you know, a, a in winter, the, the, there was a, a big room full of table tennis tables and, and stuff, and and there was an old cranky, ruddy turntable that people would bring their Susie Quattro albums and Slade albums, and, uh, and I bought my Tangerine Green album in, and yeah, I think someone threatened to throw it across. The <laughs> <laughs> but but um, yeah, and, I, and as I mentioned, Craftwork earlier in the in the show, the. These guys, I guess, paved the way for that. But there's something that I just love about Tangerine Dream, and and I'm not sure why. It's my, my favourite. One of my favourite movies of all time is is 2001, and and the dream sequence in 2001 sort of makes me think of Tangerine Dream, and and they should be doing the soundtrack for that. But um, that sort of yeah, and I guess. Especially the early Tangerine Dream albums, certainly in the seventies, there's not a lot of, of, of rhythm in there. It's all it's all just soundscapes. But I and I guess it harks back to a time where I don't get the time to do it as much as I'd like to now, but to just throw a pair of headphones in and it just yeah, let yourself drift away with this stuff and it's yeah, and the the later Tangerine Dream is a lot more is a lot more um, a lot more rhythm in it. Yes. Uh, and and uh, you know they're still very prolific. These guys still come out with at least something every year, but a lot of soundtrack stuff they do. But the interesting thing that they've, you know, that they've done over the years is a lot of their albums are actually recorded at concerts. So they'll put on a concert, record, you know, play a 
whole album to with new material and that is the album. So, you know, it, it's totally the opposite of how you think most, you know, acts of this sort of thing with, you know, with overdub and secret. In a lot of, in a lot of instances, they're actually recording in a concert. Yes. Which is really good. Yeah, Phaedra, I guess Phaedra and the, the, the album that followed up Rubicon was, was equal. Yeah, just, I guess, I guess what I loved about them when I was sort of 13 was they were just not like anything I'd ever heard. Tangerine Dream. Last but not least. Mm. All right, uh, we'll cover now my final album. And like you, I had no problem choosing the act, but had a lot of trouble choosing the um, uh, the album. And really, the the mainstay of this act uh, really has so many side projects. It was impossible. It was a really hard thing to sort of pick. Well, which project is going to be? In the end, I went with the main one. I'm talking about uh, Pat Metheny and particularly the Pat Metheny Group. And I've allowed myself the luxury, something that I normally don't do on Love That Album, but I've allowed myself the luxury of picking his live album, Travels. I guess a lot more traditional sort of guitar trio type jazz. Uh, he's been a sideman to other people, um, or you know, he's worked as part of a duo. He you know, did a duo album with uh, Brad Meldow and an album with uh, uh, the Brad Meldow trio. Uh, and he's played with John Schofield as well. And really, any of these albums could be worthy. And you know, well, to be honest, I, I guess he's also made a number of albums that, for me, blanded out a fair bit. Occasionally, you know, he's gone a bit over the edge. I mean, I think it was an album called Project X. He did with Lynette Coleman. I've never been a fan of Lynette Coleman. But, um, just, that album just left me uh, yuck. Um, but regardless of what he's played, um, his his sound is unmistakable. You hear something and you know there's Pat Metheny. No one 
quite sounds like it. Um, although, as I mentioned earlier, for a couple of albums, Al, Al Dimiola tried to. Um, so his live set travels. Um, I, I picked this you know, partly because it exhibits how exciting the group was as a live band, uh, you know, and also partly because I've avoided live albums for the podcast. And I think you know, under this guise, I could allow myself that luxury. Uh, partly because. You know, it features the cream of uh, Pat Metheny and Miles May's composition, Miles May's being his uh, piano player. It doesn't look too dissimilar to Rick Wakeman in his heyday. Um, but uh, yeah, a lot of the compositions here are uh, you know, just absolutely gorgeous. And what I really like him about him as a composer is he takes the best of formal song structure and improvisation. And that is, I think, the Pat Metheny group strength is as well. You know, he's he, he's the leader as well. But he, but this is a group effort. It's you know they're not a backing band. They they all shine. He definitely has a very strong vision for the group because there've been musicians who've gone in and out of the group, and yet he's very aware of wanting to keep that Pat Metheny group sound. So uh, really, maybe with a couple of exceptions, I think you know, there've been uh, people who gone in and out of the group who you know, really <laughs> new people sound like the old people that's not necessarily a bad thing if you know, the PNG is supposed to have a particular sound uh, you know, the thing in Maze's vision uh, and another interesting thing is you know, the thing's always been one to use a voice uh, have a voice on his uh, composition like that used as an instrument not to sing lyrics uh, and he's had you know, really a great array of, um, of singers in his band. And, um, on this Travels, on this live album, there's a, a guy who's a great percussionist as well called Nana Vasconcellos. Uh, and he, he just, really, he just slays you when you hear uh, how he sings on this album. Um, and uh, this, this album covers his tour from somewhere in the early 1980s, I think uh, the off-ramp album had uh, only just recently come out and um, he, he has you know some of the, the mainstays uh, of his uh, repertoire you know things like are you going with me and um, devotes like most of a side to a, a track which in its studio form uh, as falls with cheetah so falls with cheetah falls uh, you know talking about a whole side in its studio incarnation um, and the track we're listening to is I think you know, one of my favorites from uh, uh, from that period, a thing called Phase Dance. Um, but, uh, when, when the Pat Metheny group came to Australia, they used on the poster a quote from the Rolling Stone magazine saying that his guitar sounds like the wind in the trees of heaven. And you, know, you, could, be for, you, know, you could be forgiven for rolling your eyes and um, thinking, oh yeah, yeah, just a you know, publicity quote, a uh, good catchphrase. But when you listen to his music, you sort of think, all right, I get it. Um, it, it, it sort of does. Uh, there's this you know, beautiful breeziness to the best of his compositions, and they're just you know, beautiful, really beautiful melodically. And um, even, even when you know, he's gone away for a couple of albums uh, that I thought were a bit boring, I, I've never sort of quite could bring myself to walk away from him because he always comes back later on with uh, something really, uh, really wonderful. Um, like on, as I said on this live album, uh, are you going with me? It's this great 
really simple two-note riff that he plays over and over again. Um, uh, but it, it just works, and the band builds up over him, uh, playing these counter melodies. Uh, it reaches this really big orgasmic climax, and I'm not saying that in a hippie way. It's just you'll know what I mean if you hear it. Uh, and there's you know a couple of Latin-sounding things. And, you know, the thing's always had a thing for uh, Latin music. Uh, and a couple of pieces on here, straight on red, and Sonkerville Bauer have that Latin flavor. I'm pretty sure I think it's straight on red that has a great uh, drum duet between Nanavas Cancellus and Dan. Uh, I forgot his name. Dan, someone. Um, he's had like about five or six drummers over the years. We've had the so, but uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, if you heard the album, you know how I'm talking about Dan, someone. Uh, how embarrassing. Uh, but yeah, a great, a great live album. And I think he's actually made a second uh, live album. Probably enough called Travels 2. I haven't got that one, but uh, Travels 1 out on that ECM label before he uh, left and went to uh, Warner Brothers. Um, but uh, all the ECM label stuff is still in print. And um, I mean, you know, I could have quite easily chosen one of the studio albums, you know, American Garage, which I think might have actually even made it into the lower reaches of the pop charts. At the time, so it's a really lovely, really great uh, studio album. But um, if you want to sort of like a good representation of his music across the board at that time, um, then yeah, I'd urge you to search, search out uh, Pat Metheny Group Travels. Uh, great, it came out. I think it was originally a double vinyl album, which is how I had it. I don't know if it's been fit onto one CD or two CDs, but yeah, great album. Uh, search that one out. So there we go. We've gone through our top 10 each, 20 albums in two hours. How have we done it? Indeed, but it, it, I'm, it, was, you know, it was easy for me. Was it, was it easy for you to pick 10? It was, uh, it was, it was easy for me to pick of, 30 or 40. Yeah, well, that's uh, right. It, it's, it's, it's <laughs> it was hard I, to narrow down. Yeah, and it surprised me that, that I had the same experience. It's uh, yeah, interesting when you actually put your thinking cap on and think uh, how many instrumental albums we actually have in their collection it's like wow and, well, you see the other thing is for me and, and when we go through our um, through our honourable mentions uh, another I, I allowed myself a luxury for the honourable mentions that I wouldn't allow myself for the top 10 and that is I've got a whole bunch of best of albums uh, I mean you know as I said I haven't gone and included great bands like The Meters or, or the shadows. I mean, how can you talk about instrumental music and not mention the shadows? Because, well, in my case, I don't have like a you know, straight-ahead recorded shadows album. I have a but a really strong double album compilation. Uh, but I really want to keep this album of, of um, uh, I don't know for lack of a better expression, you know, fully designed project. So um, I, I think look before we go into our. Uh, before we go into our uh, honourable mentions, um, I put out on the Love That Album Facebook page and also on the Tough Tits and Hot Licks Facebook page, I asked the question, I want to make a bit of a survey amongst the people there, what some of their favourite um, uh, instrumental albums were. And I, you know, I got some got some really interesting responses and a few things that I'd heard of, a few things that I knew of and a few things that I didn't. Um, so. Uh, uh, Tim Merrill, who I've had a few really cool conversations with, lovely fellow, um, and uh, he's a Canadian guy, but he's, he knows his Australian music, and uh, so his pick was uh, Horse from the Dirty Three, 
uh, which I, you know, I thought was a really great choice. Um, uh, Aaron uh, Dunes, uh, who uh, started up the uh, Tough Tips and Hot Licks page and is a, you know, a really knowledgeable, writes a really great film blog. Uh, but um, he said that the only instrumental band he's ever listened to is a group called Pelican, um, which I'd never heard of. Uh, but he, he particularly liked an album of theirs called The Fire in Our Throats Will Beckon the Thaw. And that took two and a half minutes to say. Uh, but um, I, 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 he sent like a YouTube link for me to listen to some of their music. And I didn't mind that. No, is Pelican a group that you're familiar with? Not at all, but that sounds fascinating. You have to uh, do the Google thing. Mm. Uh, a fellow called Matt Skinner said that he liked Marvin Gaye's Trouble Man. And so, yeah, you know, didn't think of that. You know, a bit of. Uh, black exploitation music down there, um, and uh, so uh, yeah, yeah, Trouble Man. I, 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 I think I heard like the main theme, which I actually could have sworn I would have thought was uh, like a, a vocal track, but most of that's probably uh, instrumental as a soundtrack for uh, that film. Um, uh, another fellow, Thomas Duke, had um, gone and said you know that there were too many jazz and classical albums for him to uh, list, but his favourite rock instrumental album is from the band Camel called The Snow Goose. Um, he said he actually slightly prefers their performance of the entire album on a live record to the studio version, but there you go. Uh, uh, who else? Um, uh, Aaron, oh, Aaron made another choice uh, of an album called Foley Room by uh, Amon Tobin, who I'm not familiar with. What else? Oh, Tim came back. And also said uh, Mike Oldfield's soundtrack for The Killing Fields. And I vaguely recall that music, you know, from uh, having seen the film, you know, back in the day when it came out. Um, I, I'm no Mike Oldfield fan, but I do recall that the music worked really well for, uh, <coughs> for the film. Um, you're, you're an Oldfield fan, are you? I do, actually, I do actually like Mike Oldfield. I, I, yeah, some, some albums more than others, but... Um yeah, as as a in in general, he uh, he's a uh, interesting character indeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, who else? Are we have two blue bills for yet. <laughs> I, I I think probably um there's as many two bills albums as there are Rocky films out there. Um, uh, Alan uh Loftager has gone and said that um his favorite is uh, Joe Satriani's The Extremist now. You mentioned Steve Vai before. Do you go down the Joe Satriani road as well? Yeah, I love Satriani, and and the Extremist is an interesting record. Yeah, I, he um he's he's a lot more for me. He's a lot more bluesy guy than um, than Vi. Vi, you know, Vi is the Saint, is the Frank Zappa end of the scale, and and um and Satriani is the the Hendrix end of the scale for me. But uh, yeah, that's a great record. I, I, I really like um, Flying in a Blue Dream and and. Uh, Surfing with the alien in my favourite. I can't remember who taught who. Was was it Satriani that taught Vi? Yes, yes. yes because, yeah. uh, Satriani's a little bit older, I think. Okay, he's older. Yeah. Uh, and two more. Uh, Dave McElmore, who I've also had a lot of uh, good um, conversations with about music. Uh, seems like a lovely fellow uh, out of Texas, and he's gone and said. Uh, I think the instrumental hits of Buck Owens is a must-have record if you enjoy his music. It's a real joy to listen to Don Rich with such an incredible guitar player. Um, I can't say I've ever sort of gone down the Buck Owens road. How about you? Only, only from uh, from sort of the uh, the Credence connection because they you know uh, they pay a lot of homage to Buck Owens over mm. the years. 
But um, no, well, I, I respect a lot of what uh, Dave has to say, so maybe I'll have to uh, give that a try. Um, yeah, he's uh, he's got a lot of uh, things that uh, he's like which I've followed up on. I think, oh, that's really good. So um, yeah, maybe I'll maybe I'll have to uh, follow down that road. And the last one I got is from uh, Juan over at the List Music Podcast. He's gone and set up said that uh, for him it's a toss up between Miles Davis' Bitches Brew album or Sketches of Spain. Um, for me, between the two, to be Sketches of Spain, I've got to confess, I, I I think I bought on vinyl a copy of Bitches Brew when I was 15, and I couldn't put it away quickly enough. It was really, you know, for, uh, maybe I'd maybe I'd like it a lot better nowadays, but as a 15 year old, that was way too hard for me to uh, to understand. Uh, I've got a copy in it, and it's grown on me over the years. I must admit. I think I've seen an album on CD, which is basically Bitches Brew done live. Which sort of seems like an unusual thing, given that it's you know all improvised. You know, it was just a bunch of instruments thrown into a room, and they played whatever they wanted to at the time, wasn't it? Or am I not? Am I selling it short? I was in red. There was a live one. That would be interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is. I think I've seen it in basement discs here. And there. Mm-hmm. All right. So I've gone through the uh, Facebook gang's um, favourites. Uh, so do you want to go through any of the albums that uh, you want to give honourable mentions to? Yeah, well, I guess for, you know, there's as, as we sort of touched on before, Morris. There's a, there's a few that we that we sort of overlapped, and and you know, Steve Morse was certainly one, but and and Sky was certainly another. And I I sort of like the third Sky album as well. I think it was a bit of an overlooked album. It was it was uh, Steve Gray's first album with them, and um, it, it was certainly a very different approach because you know Francis Munkerman brought this classical uh, sensibility to the band and. and Gray was you know, more of a pop uh, pianist and his style of composition. Uh, I think he only had maybe about two or three compositions on the album, but I, I think they sort of went along with what he did. Um, yeah, look, uh, I, I think uh, there's a tune on it called Mexico, um, which for me is you know one of my favourite Sky compositions ever. Um, really, you know, I, I said before, fun. And that track is fun, and that whole album is fun. So yeah, Sky Three is another great album. I, I think from Sky Four, where they sort of tried to do for about eighty percent of the album all classical adaptations. I think some of the tunes don't really quite work. I know that Kevin Peake had like mentioned earlier on that he really wanted to do um, uh, the uh, uh, Flight of the Valkyrie or, uh, from uh, from uh, the Wagner. Ring cycle, uh, and um, he said, "I really want to do that." So that was probably it was. Yeah, it didn't have the majesty that really that it should have had. By the end of their career, they did a whole album full of uh, uh, trip of tribute to Mozart, and, and that was I, I'd seen as really the nadir of their career. I wish they'd made another album after that because I hate to think that the last thing they did was was Hooked um, on that, classics. Oh, it, it really, it was Sky's version of Hooked on Classics. It was, it was pretty bad. But, um, and, yeah. No, and, and, uh, and the other, the other, the other one that we crossed over a lot was with Rick Wakeman, I guess, fairly obviously. But, um, yeah. And, and I think you mentioned White Rock. And I, you know, that's an overlooked album, I think. I really like that when I go back and listen to it. But there was a, there was also a, a series of, I think, three, Albums in the nineties that Rick Wakeman made, which was just him playing the grand piano, and they are just magnificent. Oh, I'd get, I'd get that if I knew. Mm. Well, I'm, I, his website's pretty 
pretty good. You, I think you can buy a lot of stuff off his website, which, um, yeah, which I'd try not to go to because I'd spend a fortune. <laughs> well, that's that's why you work for um, one of the grandest companies in Australia. You surely are earning a shitload of money, are you not? So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and um and and in a similar way to you mentioned the the shadows, Morris. The you know I I couldn't pick. I you know I love the big band drummers like Buddy Rich and, and Max Roach and Gene Kruger, but but I guess, you know, most of the stuff I've got is, is sort of compilation stuff of, that was released on CD, so mm, it's, mm. you know, we've, I guess not being around <laughs> when those original albums came out, but, you know, there's there's lots of stuff from those guys that I, that, that I love, but also in a, in a jazz vein, and, and again, no particular album, because I've only got compilation stuff. Is one of my favourite jazz acts is the Dudley Moore Trio, and as, oh, you, you, as a as a piano, bass, and drums group, they were the best. That, look, the, the Dudley Moore Trio albums today is one of my honourable mentions. Um, Song for Susie. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people out there they might not know it by name, but his his tune Song for Susie, which he wrote in tribute to his then wife Susie Kendall. Um, in its in its day, it was all over the place. It's a very famous tune, and I think that there's even I've got a live Dudley Moore trio album recorded at the Sydney Opera House. Uh, I think his drummer Chris Caron was in Australia, um, but uh, yeah, oh no, I'm fully with you there, man. On the, uh, the that, that Dudley Moore trio stuff, it's fantastic. It's, it's it's a great injustice that Dudley Moore is remembered for these woeful movies, because uh, as a musician then and, and um, the stuff he did with with Peter Cook, he just, oh, just overshadows those awful films. <laughs> oh, look, you know, I won't have you saying anything bad about Bedazzled. You know, oh, it, it's it's one of my favourite films of all time. You know, just a, oh, that, 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 oh, please, oh, you, oh, you, you wounded oh, me. I was, I was more thinking of us. Like ten and a half. Oh wow! Okay. Right. Yes. Oh, say what you want about those. But um, anyway, just yeah. So just to finish off, and and again, hard to pick albums, but you know, guys that I could have easily found instrumental albums by by some guitar player, other guitar players that I love is um, Stanley Jordan and, and Stanley Clark. Oh yes. And 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 Earl Klug is a guy that I really like, who's a a sort of funk player, but. Um, I don't think anyone, you know, and I actually haven't heard of him for a long time, but he made some, and although they were sort of made in the 80s, the, the albums that sort of did reasonably well, there was one called Low Ride, mm. which which sounds a bit dated, but just awesome playing, just, um, you know, very very 80s jazz sort of guy. But um, lastly, I just wanted to mention, I guess, one of my favourite guitar players, and, and his first album, Six and Twelve String Guitar, was is still just a masterpiece, and that's Leo Kotke, he is just... Yep. And and I saw him play. He did he did a show. I'm I'm sure if it was a one off or, or they actually toured. And it's it's many years ago now. But it was um, Joe Pass, the jazz player. Yes. Um, John Williams, uh, we mentioned in Sky, and Leo Kotke together. Now the most you know weird collection of of players. Um, you know, but the likes of you know John Williams is a, a virtuoso, a professor. Mm. But Leo Kotke, self-taught. You know, just. And he just stole the show. He had everybody on their feet, and he was again. He was a uh, he was fun, and he was just yeah, as as great a guitar player as the other guys were. But but just the, the consummate performer and a very very fun guy. So uh, he hasn't been back to Australia in a long time. So uh, yeah, but that that first album is just a cracker. 
Yeah, no, Kotke was uh, absolutely uh, rollicking. Really fantastic guitar player. I've never been too crazy about his voice, but... Um, oh, but oh, as, okay. <laughs> sorry? I totally agree. Yeah, but as a uh, as a guitar player, yeah, he's in a class all of his own. Uh, it's funny you mentioned... Yeah, I, I didn't know that John Williams and Joe Pass had played on the same stage together, but I remember reading an interview where, um, uh, you know, he, he, John Williams had been asked, you know, who are your favourite non-classical players? And he said, uh, you know, without question, his two favourites were Eric Clapton and Joe Pass. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I found that really interesting to hear and come from that. I, I, I think he had some sort of a disregard for a lot of rock guitar players, but, um, but yeah, those, those two, you know, I mean, well, I guess you know, Pass being a, uh, a jazz player, you know, maybe he didn't suffer um, John Williams' disdain, but um, but it was interesting that Clapton got uh, got the nod there from uh, from John Williams. Interesting. I vaguely recall they recorded something together, but I can't. A lot of me think of what mm. I might have seen. Um, all right, so let's see what have I got in my uh, list of honourable mentions. I, I don't know. I might have to. Uh, Slow this down a bit because, it, or, or not go through all of them because there's too many here. But um, uh, okay, so just yeah, a few. Um, uh, while I was in uh, Canada back in 1996, I went to the Montreal Jazz Festival, and it was the thrill of for me to go see um, uh, Branford Marsalis with his father Ellis Marsalis uh, do a duo show. Uh, they put out an album called Loved Ones. Which was their musical tribute to uh, to the women in their life, or the, or, or music um, uh, named after jazz tunes named after women. So you know things like Lulu's "Back in Town" or uh, Laura, which had been written for a, you know, a, a wonderful film. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, and they even, I think, Ellis had written a tune in dedication to his wife and you know, Bramford's mother. Um, so it's a great album, Loved Ones, and just just to see the two of them on stage. I can't remember. I might have even mentioned that album, that gig previously on a Love That Album show. But um, yeah, if you can track that one down, it's just absolutely gorgeous. And uh, Branford was completely reverential to his father, Alice. And uh, Branford normally didn't look like he you know, gave into anyone, but he adored his father and respected his father. It was just a wonderful thing to see. Uh, also in that, I guess, uh, that sort of vein uh, of, of uh, great pianist, Horace Silva, who I just missed out on seeing at the Montreal Jazz Festival. And he's made a lot of really great albums. But the one that um, really caught my attention is a song for my father. Um, in fact, I'm pretty sure uh, that uh, Steely Dan stole their uh, riff for Ricky Don't Lose That Number from... Uh, uh, the tune song for my father, but just don't let Larrikin music know about it. Um, Bill Frisell, who I'm so thrilled, finally came out to Australia about two, three years ago. Uh, I got to see him as part of the Melbourne Jazz Festival at the Forum Theatre, the gorgeous, majestic Forum Theatre. Uh, and like, I, I could pick any number of his albums, but the one I really like um, is Gone Just Like a Train, which features one of our favourite drummers, Jim Keltner. Uh, playing on that, and Victor Krauss on upright bass, who's the brother of uh, of um, uh, Alison Krauss, the um, uh, the uh, singer and uh, fiddle player. Um, what else? Booker T and the MGs album Melting Pot, although 
Micklemore Avenue could have gotten a, a Guernsey here as well, I guess. Um, Duke Ellington meets Count Basie, the, you know, the two orchestras playing together. That is just absolutely mighty. And that, that's such a fantastic album. I mean, I love a lot of uh, Ellington stuff, but you know, this is you know, it, it tackles both well-known Basie and Ellington stuff, but two orchestras, man, it's... It's just fantastic, and you can probably get it for like 10 bucks. So um, really go out there and, and uh, pick that one up if you can. Uh, an album I mentioned before, uh, John McLaughlin's music spoken here with uh, the Lebec sisters playing keyboards. Um, I forget who's uh, in the rhythm section there, but um, yeah, a really great album. I'm not sure how easy that is to pick up on uh, CD nowadays. It was recorded back on Warner Brothers back in the day, but I think it might have gone to um, some... A subsidiary label on CD. It might be a bit harder to pick up, but uh, worth your while searching out some fantastic music on there. And he's uh, sort of uh, left some of the, uh, 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 the the heaviness, for lack of a better word, of the Mahavishnu Orchestra behind. This is um, you know, still some incredible playing, but a, a lot more laid back. Uh, still maybe some intense work here, but, but um, uh, yeah. Anyway, decidedly different to his Mahavishnu Orchestra days, but once again, it could be any McLaughlin stuff. Um, he did a great live album back in the early 90s uh, in a trio featuring a drummer who I should have mentioned on uh, your drummer's show called uh, Trilok Gertu, um, who he's like, he plays, um, he, he can, he plays uh, a drum kit, but not, a conventional drum kit as well as tabla, um, an amazing player. I don't know if you've heard of him, but you want mm-hmm. to search search him out. Trilock Gertur, who played for, uh, as I said, with McLaughlin and probably a bunch of other great jazz musos for a time. An absolutely amazing player. Um, but yeah, John McLaughlin's music spoken here is the one I'm recommending here. Um, a few of the best ofs that I really like. Uh, the best, very best of the meters uh, out of New Orleans. Um, Medeski, Martin and Wood who I think are out of San Francisco uh, have a great um, uh, they, they actually have two best of albums one from their days uh, before they went to Blue Note um, I think it might be out on Ryko Disc an album called Last Chance to Dance Trance and an album that they did for um, they, they, a best of that they did from their albums at Blue Note which is a little bit more hip hop in flavour but not exactly my bag but um their last chance to dance trance is um, really something special. They did a, a, an album uh, with uh, John Schofield joining them as well um, called Out Louder, I think, uh, and that's worth searching out as well. Uh, there's an album by, uh, I think he's out of Melbourne, uh, a drummer called Alan Brown uh, called Collected Works, and I like this because it's a double CD and the first album is all trad jazz and the second album is all more uh contemporary you know bop and post-bop sort of stuff uh it's a very versatile player uh i don't think he's a well man but um i i he, he might still be playing i'm not sure but collected works is a really great album to uh, search out i think i heard him being interviewed on uh, pbs radio in the last 12 months or so uh sounds like a lovely man a fascinating man and a, uh, a great drummer and a great composer uh, who else? The Charlie Hunter Trio, who um, a guitar trio, but I think he plays this uh, guitar that he designed uh, a, a eight or nine string 
guitar and he, the first Charlie Hunter trio album is called Bing 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 and um, it, they got played on Triple R here it, not often a, a jazz guitar trio gets played on the breakfast show but they did um, their version of uh, Come As You Are played in um, I think 5-4 time so um, that, that got them to uh, an audience that might not have otherwise sort of uh, heard much about them but they were great uh, uh, the list goes I've, I've got about another 10, 20 albums here, so I might not sort of go through all that. Uh, I'll, I'll go through two more, two more. Uh, a Polish trumpet player who sounds so scarily like Miles Davis, it's not funny, a guy called uh, Tomasz Stanko, uh, and he's been around for, for you know, 40-odd years or something like that, and the first I heard of him was uh, an album that he recorded for ECM uh, called The Shape of Things. Um and, and really, it, it, you close your eyes. If you didn't look at the cover, you'd think it was a Miles Davis, a long-lost Miles Davis album. Uh, just really gorgeous stuff, you know, probably from um, his, uh, you know, his days with the famous quintet of um, uh, you know, Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter and Tony Williams and, and Ron, um, Ron um, help me out. Uh, you know how I'm talking about Ron, Ron, someone, you know, I'm, I'm, Losing my memory. It's it's, it's eleven thirty here at night on Sunday night, so that's my that's my quiet uh, for my forgetfulness. And the last band I want to mention is another band out of Melbourne uh, called Pyramid, who were um, not quite fusion, but not quite uh, straight ahead jazz, for lack of a better word. But uh, the best elements of both, and they featured um, one of my favourite Australian drummers. Uh, and I'm sure one of your favourites, a guy called David Jones. No, yes, he does. Um, and that, that featured a uh, uh, really great lineup. Roger McLaughlin, uh, long around session bass player. Uh, Bob Venier on trumpet. And David Hirschfelder, who went on to become, I think, musical director and piano player in John Farnham's band. But uh, back in the day, he was uh, the composer, main composer for uh, this band, Pyramid. And they came out with a couple of really great albums. Uh, the one that I guess the honourable mention here for me is their self-titled debut album. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot there. Could have gone on and on and on. There's a lot of really great instrumental albums out there, but you know, it can only fit so many into one lengthy podcast. <laughs> uh, we've been gaffing on for ages. So, all right. So we've done things a little bit different. Had none of the usual intro stuff. And I think I've got a segment from uh, Eric Reanimator, but I'm going to hold it off to the next show. And um, uh, just, yeah, basically, otherwise we could be up here all night. Uh, look, my thanks to all the usual suspect of uh, podcast friends who uh, have supported this show and who I love to listen to. Um, I can't remember all the lists because it's late at night. Silver and Gold. Paleo Cinema and the Martian Drive-In Podcast, the Mondo Film and Video Guide, The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, uh, Sound Opinions, um, Better in the Dark, The List Music and The List Film Podcast, uh, some show called Sitting in a Bar in Adelaide, I don't know. Um, yeah, I think that pretty much covers it. Anyone who you want to uh, send hello to, give thanks to, anything you want no, to say? No. No, just the um, the weather gods tonight. Uh, the weather forecast for the Adelaide Hills is 
down to one degree. So <laughs> all, all I'm thinking about is keep it warm tonight. Get your hot water bottle out, Michael. Just about, yeah. So, so tell me who's coming into uh, that bar in Adelaide in the next uh, week or two. This week. Daryl Braithwaite's up this week. Whoa. Yeah, and... Um, don't hold that against me, but if you... I, I, will, I will not do that at all. The man has a fine voice. He, he's, he, the, the, the thing about that I like about Daryl Raithwaite is people's preconceptions are totally wrong about Daryl Raithwaite. He is, a, he is a funny guy. He is a very entertaining guy. And, um, yeah. He strikes he's, me as a very down-to-earth sort of guy. He is. He is indeed. But he's, um, yeah, yeah, very likeable chap. And, um, yeah, uh, I really enjoyed having a chat to him. And uh, we... Uh, I, I even got some uh, a few little uh, a few funny little uh, anecdotes from the uh, from the sherbet days out of it, which is <laughs> which is always a bit bit of fun. But um, yeah, and um, he's a uh, he's a mad Collingwood supporter, so I did manage to put the boot in as much as I could because oh, now I, now I like him even more. <laughs> so if people want to find you, how do they find you? Oh, what is it? AdelaideRockShow.mevio.com is the website. But I think if you just throw sitting in a bar in Adelaide into your browser it's um, it's all over the place so well that should find me excellent all right well look thank you so much michael for um, uh, sitting up on this sunday night it's a school night and we both got to get up for, uh, well, for I, work. I had a late i had a late night gig last night mate i'm getting old this ah, stuff it's, so it's so. Very... <laughs> oh well you get, but you're getting used to it you know, you're resilient you're not old you're resilient is that what it is? I wasn't resilient on the way, on the, <laughs> driving back from the gig at you know three thirty in the morning last night. That was uh, yeah. Yeah, you'll you'll show these young twenty year old whippersnappers how to do it. <laughs> Actually, it was funny. the The gig we did Saturday night was was um, up in the Riverland at a, at a country town called Manham, and the, and there was a heap of like twenty year old guys in the audience just going nuts all night. And um, and one of them walked in near the end of the gig with a guitar case, and we just because they were they were giving us um, giving us lip all night, and um, and we said, you know, get a guitar, get up here, boy, and he did. <laughs> and <laughs> was it was he, was he any good? It was good, yeah. He uh, uh, just did a, a tune of his own, and uh, we uh, we had time for a five minute break and get an extra drink. So there you go. So this method in their madness. Fantastic. All right. Okay. Well. Um I look forward to doing whatever our next show will be together. We're probably going to speak off air about that. I know that we've probably got about ten albums between us that we could think of to uh, to do. Richard Clapton, yeah, Richard Clapton, and I'm keen to talk about great Adelaide band stars that we've been talking about. So there's a couple without even thinking about it. Definitely, yep, yep. Paradise um, and stars of uh, and um, Land of Fortune, Land of Fortune. Yep, yep. We'll. um, well, either one of those two will be uh, probably the next thing that we speak about on Love That Album. So, once again, many thanks for joining me. And uh, I'll fun. be downloading uh, your conversation with uh, Dazza Braithwaite uh, probably before I go to bed. So, I've got something to listen to on my way to work tomorrow. All right, mate. Always good to talk to you. Take care. All right. Thanks. And uh, we'll um, see you in a couple of weeks again on Love That Album. Thanks for listening. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.